What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is Real Reality Realness with Brian K. James, the podcast where I, your host, Brian, interview figures in music, reality TV, and pop culture about their lives, their perspectives, and their platforms. Join me five days a week as I get to know some of my favorite people through their points of view and their journeys to their personal greatness. Lock in while I clock in, because we are about to get into it. television viewers welcome and welcome back this is real reality realness i'm brian k james and i put the mess in the message i am so excited to have my guest on today and introduce them to you all they're a youtuber and an incredibly hilarious film television and content critic and i'm honored to share their story with you all today ladies gentlemen and every gender or lack thereof in between join me in welcoming to the show nick deramio Hi. Oh my gosh. Hello, television viewers. Thank you for, for using my catchphrase or my signature greeting. <laughs> well, I tried to, you know, slip and give them just a sneak <laughs> peek of who's coming on today. Love that. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. How you doing? I'm doing great. Just uh, working on some videos, getting ready for a quick little trip out of town this weekend. So just trying to do both things at once. I don't, I'm always like editing videos on the airplane and I feel like um, I look very, I feel like it looks bizarre for the people sitting around you to be like, just like editing a video with of yourself sitting behind a desk for like, people are like, what is he doing? But, so I'm trying to avoid that. <laughs> I'm being the creative of today. Like we look yeah. at ourselves and we're obsessed with ourselves. It's what we do. Exactly. It's exactly what it looks like. I'm a self-obsessed millennial lady, okay? I'm being the product. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, has, how has 2023 been for you so far? 2023 has been good. It's been a very interesting year. I think um, it's like uh, the third year since becoming a full-time YouTuber, my second year since moving out to Palm Springs, and a lot of kind of like, I don't know, just like changes to the workflow and how I make videos and this the rate at which I make them has all kind of shifted and changed around a little bit from that first and second year. Um, so that's been something to like, like grapple with, you know, like I, I knew for 2021 and 2022, I was like, really cranking out videos like two a week and I could tell that it wasn't like sustainable. I was feeling some burnout creeping in maybe. Um, like I just didn't have any wiggle room in my schedule at all during the week for, for a social life or anything. Uh, but even like going to the grocery store, I was, you know, unable to. So it was interesting this year to see that all kind of give a little bit in that I was, a little more forgiving with myself when I wasn't able to do two videos a week always. And 
uh, not on the same day and time of the week. And so that at first, I, it brought a lot of guilt <laughs> and fear because you're like, oh, is this going to ruin my channel for the algorithm? Like all of this stuff that I was curious uh, about before, you know, how where the resiliency was on that kind of thing. But then after, you know, your full time content creating, it's like suddenly a much more pressing issue. So that's been like a something to to really sink my teeth into this year uh is like just finding balance and finding like out where the limits are in terms of how flexible i can be not just with the youtube algorithm but obviously i want to like put out new content for fans all the time so i don't want to disappoint anyone there either so. that makes perfect sense we're always waiting i <laughs> like, like i said i've been literally binge watching your um, channel for the past week and i think i've seen everything at this point so i'm like uh -oh. when's the new drop <laughs> we're ready thank you so much <laughs> first of all yeah i know i feel the same way i'm always like just get the next one out as soon as possible which is why like it's like a, a few days passes and i'm like oh i haven't uploaded it's like i feel this like you know but i'm sure you feel it too like as a content creator it's like this anxiety to like always be getting the next thing out and before, I mean, after, right after you get it out, it's like, I don't don't even really have time to read those comments, like, I'm trying to do the next one. So, but it's good. It's like, a, I would still prefer that, you know, working for myself over any of the other previous jobs I've had, where it's like similar work in that it's brand management or social media management, but all for a different entity and uh, for the approval of some other management. That makes perfect sense. What are you hoping to accomplish by the end of the year that you haven't so far? That's a very good question. I I would love to So this is more like not not necessarily like on a professional level, but personally, I moved out to the desert in hopes of purchasing property, like buying a home. And okay. the market just wasn't there when I moved out and it wasn't a buyer's market at all. It's still not, but I would love to know more by the end of the year. If if I'm going to buy the home, I would like to be taking active steps towards doing that or at least looking um, and then, or just know, okay, I'm not gonna be looking in 2024. I'm gonna, I'm choosing to rent for this reason or that, or so yeah, either have a have a budget and a mortgage or uh, approval type of thing to go look or be like, okay, no, I'm going to rent for one more year and go to, you know, London this month and travel that month. So I would like to, I would like to have, it feels like I just need to sit and think about it. And sometimes it's like, well, start thinking because it's almost the end of the year. <laughs> right. It's like, where am I going? What am I doing? Oh, it yeah. was just June last month and now it's November. What's going on here? The months fly by so fast now that like being an adult time just has such a, it hits different. It's like, um, I, I used to agonize waiting for Christmas to come or Halloween, all these holidays, even just like summer vacation. Now it's like you blink and it's already the next holiday. And instead of being excited for vacation, it's like, I have to shop for presents. You know, it's like- uh, Right, it's like, I have to shop for presents. Privy. What happened? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There's no, there's like, I guess it's just because kids, I remember being bored as a kid. I don't feel boredom often in my life anymore because, and I mean, like all adults, I'm just so busy. 
so the time flies and it's just like you know the sand through the hourglass like oh now i'm getting now i'm more th even more in my 30s than i was <laughs> exactly like i just turned 32 this year so i'm like oh i like like I was so used to saying, oh, well, when I woke up on my 28th birthday, I felt grown. And now I'm like, oh, I'm 32. I feel like I need to be signing up for AARP. Like, what's going on? Like, what's happening with my life? <laughs> I know. Seriously, I turned 32 this year, too. And it was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, I guess on the internet, that means you're, you are, yeah, yeah you're, uh, people think that I'm daddy on the internet. And it's like, but out here in Palm Springs, that's so below the median age even so it's like my identity is constantly swirling between being like i'm still the young baby and the one that's like no i'm the i'm the dad it's like okay we'll just land somewhere in the middle like i'm just 32 it's just 32. <laughs> maybe i need to move to palm springs because i'm tired of being the old bitch in, oh, yeah. in the room now yeah. like totally it, like in my mind i'm still a twink but it's not happening for me anymore same. I still see myself as like, oh, the one as a, you. I grew up, and you're in like any group of gay men, and you say your age, and everyone's like, oh, you're so young. I hate you. And then they slowly stop saying that with every year, like less and less say that. Now you so, find that you're the one that's like, wow, I'm old now. Oh, you're 22. Yes. Wow. Oh yeah, I was in Europe and like in the nightclubs, people could be like 18 and 19 and 20. And I was like, they look like school children to me. Like it feels, I feel like now I can see physically how much older I am than they are. Um, but you know what? I'm, I'm just happy that we have uh, a new generation of smart kids, Gen Z, all growing up to fix our climate issues and solve our crises. So. It's not, it's not with any envy that I look down at the work they have to do uh, in the coming decades. Uh, and I'm just interested to see how, how we millennials become the new boomers and try to fuck everything up for them. <laughs> yeah. And I see myself kind of doing it now with like music. And I'm like, who are these rappers? What are y'all talking about? Like, why, why, like, what is happening now? <laughs> I know. Boomer, I say boomer stuff or I'm like, um, what is the gritty? Like everyone's doing the gritty. And then they'll be like, don't say it like that. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and they'll be like, and right. like, the clothing. I'm like this, I remember we wore that in 2000. And it's like, that sounds so bizarre to, to like be saying that now, but <laughs> okay. It's like growing up as a- trend. To give people references that they were not even born yet for is yes. traumatizing. Yeah talking about knowing like, that it's only like the year 2002 yeah and they were born in, yeah like to think of someone being born in 2002 i'm like oh my god I, I can say i can tell you where i was and i was 11 like it's so bizarre but i guess it's like all of this okay. stuff i heard about growing up um and now i'm just starting to experience it so it's like okay thanks thanks universe i get it everything i'm comes back around <laughs> I'm right there with you. We are reaping what we sow right now, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, for the people who aren't aren't as obsessed with you as I am, can you introduce yourself to, to the people and let them know who you are? Yeah. So, first of all, why aren't they as obsessed with me as you are? I'm just kidding. 
I exactly. am <laughs> first problem. No, um, I am. I am a YouTube content creator. I have a uh, series that I created called Clip Breakdown, basically a clip comedy format show where I offer movie reviews and pop culture commentary. Um, the movie reviews tend to be lower budget, made for TV things. We're talking Hallmark Christmas movies, uh, nostalgic Disney Channel movies from the new millennium, and um, anything across the web for, for pop culture content. Specifically, many originally found my channel uh, for content on Shane Dawson, a YouTuber who was canceled right in the beginning of the pandemic for past problematic behavior. And it is certainly fascinating to watch. And I know uh, we had talked a little bit before about cancel culture and it's like uh, specifically through covering content by this creator, Shane Dawson, it's been very fascinating to watch how one creator's cancellation evolves. And like, as we know, like most careers do survive after someone is publicly canceled. Um, so to be able to kind of watch Shane as a case study has been very interesting. And it's, you know, frankly, it's low hanging fruit in terms of comedy because the, the, um, the content is easy to make fun of. And that is something I really admire <laughs> when I'm working on Clip Breakdown. I'll say this, I've never enjoyed Shane, Shane Dawson's content more than watching you cover it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> never. I've never liked Shane Dawson more than watching you cover it. That makes me happy. I feel like um, even before Shane Dawson was um, like persona non grata, I would watch it, <laughs> like the, all of these um, docu-series he would put out. And there was just something about it that I was like, I can't, I'm, my instincts were telling me like, this is not good. Like, it's not really that good. And I feel, I sense, inauthenticity um but you know you couldn't really say because he was like at the time people would call him the oprah of youtube where it was just like everyone loves him and i was like okay i mean i guess if this is what is good or if this is what the public thinks is good on youtube then it's something to aspire to at least like the output like he's putting out so much at one point um but uh it's been very gratifying then to see that like oh, okay as as all of us kind of matured as an audience together we, we start to see the cracks in that public persona and hold him accountable and others. And I, through making content featuring him, but also many other topics, it was validating to be like, okay, cool. So like people watching YouTube also find what I have my sense of humor or um, share the same kind of taste in comedy. Uh, so it doesn't have to be just like, bad lazy jokes you know like there's actually um there's actually a place for all of us you know maybe there's still bad lazy jokes out there on youtube but yeah, never on my channel <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely get it let me take a sidebar really quick because i want to go back and watch old 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 um shows of the of oprah because i feel like her reputation as a talk show host has been completely ruined by this generation. Like the people that get compared to Oprah nowadays, I'm like, what was Oprah giving back in the day? 
Like yeah. Young Miami from the City Girls wants to be the Black Oprah, and okay. then Shane Dawson being the Oprah of YouTube. I was like, what has Oprah right. been doing all of these years? Yeah, you know, and Oprah used to be like the icon of daytime talk shows. Like I remember she wheeled out a wagon of artificial uh, her body, body fat. fat. Yes. <laughs> and then of course, like the giving away the car, the famous things or the favorite things like, and then, but yeah, I, I remember seeing clips of her like way back when it was just like a local show in Chicago. And it was like, I mean, she's just like, her story is so inspirational. Um, so and yeah it's like there's so much when you call when oprah what makes oprah oprah it comes with such like an amazing story of of being a self-made millionaire and it's not just about being like a friendly on-screen persona you know it's like it's about she someone who really worked their whole lives and and, and you know like when oprah talks about uh, self-improvement or, or personal development it feels like she's doing that work whereas like Ellen DeGeneres it's like be kind and smile and it's like mm, aren't you yelling at people behind the scenes like all the time exactly and you know what's funny is I'm starting to see a few people go back like um, you hear like these random people come out and say how like she was so rude to them on their show like when um like, I think it was, uh, who was it? Christy Brinkley, not Christy Brinkley, uh, Brooke Shields maybe was talking about how she was rude to her and like the infamous um, story when um, to when Tony Braxton went, bank went bankrupt the um, first time and like she was like, well, I'm Oprah Winfrey and I don't have Gucci flatware. I was like, oh. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. It's like, it's certainly, there are some cringy moments that throughout there too where it's like you know maybe it's just that absolute power corrupts absolutely it's like people lose touch and say it's like uh and don't realize like the power they might have to to influence an audience's opinion you know so if like oprah is admonishing me for my my shoes my gucci flats like the whole audience is going to be like, oh, it's a good point. Oprah's right. It's like, because we're in her domain watching her show while she's on stage. So it's like, and I, f I found that too, even on YouTube. Like, um, if I just say something that's like, if I give feedback on a creator's work and just like inch in the direction of like um, stating something that could use improvement or making uh, fun of them in some way you know and like the way that i do it's like roasting them in some way sometimes mm -hmm. though i'll see the comments where i'm like oh people really ran with that like people are like i've never heard anyone say take it that far like they'll they'll kind of like um i, I can see that what i say would might plant the seeds uh, of like a conversation against somebody in the comment section and it's like oh man that's like uh very important to recognize because i could just I, I want to be responsible with that, you know? It's like, I don't want to say anything I don't mean, you know? And it's like, I don't want to ever single somebody out who I don't think deserves it without also making it really clear that I'm giving them credit where credit is due. Um, Cause like, you know, we can really in influence people to like have a feel a certain way about somebody. And it's like, I don't want to just do that all, uh, 
all willy-nilly just because it's like i can and i need a new subject for a video you know i can't wait for the think piece to come out in the new york times about some creator and it cites you as the source but like <laughs> coming from nick deramio <laughs> yes yeah. and then this entire I debate. The whole world. yeah <laughs> i feel like um there's there's got to be more like real reputable publications looking into a lot of the stuff that creators do because i feel like with each scandal things just become more and more mainstream like um or at least the power the abuse of power dynamic for example might be more and more egregious and and um important for the public to know about like with colleen ballinger recently it's like i, I feel like there were more like big newspapers uh printing stories about this because it's like oh suddenly it's not just some like internet drama it starts to feel more like the harvey weinstein case where you're like oh there's some real abuse happening here or at least some real potential for harm that kids are exposed to if we're not all like aware of it yeah it's definitely gotten as i think people have become more ingratiated in the internet and culture. It's like people are paying attention more to the social awareness of things as time has gone on. And then now it's become, now that the internet is pop culture, it's like that's gone from these quote unquote celebrities that we used to know of the A-list movie stars and the this and the that. And now it's like, oh, your favorite TikToker is a predator. And it's like, whoa, yeah, right? how do we get here? <laughs> yeah, it feels so shocking at first because like, I mean, I forget because like we've had social media for like our whole adult lives. Like as long as we've had social lives, at least I've had access to some social media. So it feels ubiquitous. It feels like it's always been there, but it's actually very new. You know, it's like we're the first, um, you know, that. Oh, go ahead. we're the first like uh, generation of people making a full time living online, you know, as content creators, which is, you know, a big job market now. And it's going to be for the probably rest of, you know, human time or whatever. So it's like for that to suddenly mean that, oh, now we get hard hitting news stories coming out uh, where like before the Internet was a thing, it would never be like just regular everyday people getting famous online and then having scandals play out in the public eye it wouldn't make sense like there would be no interest so it feels like uh very surreal when this kind of stuff is is what everyone's talking about because it is just like but we're just we're just youtubers we're just content creators it's like what celebrities are the are the celebrities but you know in an age where people are going to the movies less and uh, the attention spans are shrinking we're watching series uh more I guess um, we're more choosy about what content we consume and, and short form is always gonna be, I think a lower commitment for people to watch. And and then it's like the whole parasocial kind of relatability thing, you know, people can watch it, you know, they might watch Stranger Things, but that's gonna be a different experience that you have with those actors uh, than with a vlogger or a YouTuber or a TikToker who, does feel like it's just, you know, it could be a friend, you know, somewhere else in the world. Um, so it's like these relationships form and that makes the scandals matter, you know? 
Yeah, because I think that with with the rise of social media, reality television, the internet culture, this parent this parasocial relationship has become like the norm where as with like scripted content, there's a disconnect because we know it's fantasy. We know like this is something that, you know, somebody wrote down and made up and there are people who are people who are playing these people and they're not really these people. Whereas now we're seeing people just going viral and being canceled just for being themselves and for existing. Right, right. Which, yeah, it's so fascinating <laughs> to see like someone like, like, oh, they just said that unprompted. Like that must be how they really feel. It, yeah, there, there's weight to it because you know, even like reality TV, uh, by the time like the 2010s rolled around, we watch it knowing it's mostly fake. You know, it's like by then we're not exactly like, oh, I can't believe that happened to have happened, that that huge fight on Real Housewives. You're like, yeah, you know that they're turning it up for the camera. They've been uh, goaded into it with liquor and, you know, like um, the producers are back there toiling with everything. Jerry Springer, it's all about like, uh, it was all about getting people to be as reactive as possible. So it's kind of like, you. it stopped feeling so real, obviously. And then on this thing where it's like, well, I know that that family vlogger, she doesn't have a producer telling her to act up. Like, or like, this is just really how it is in that house. Right. You know, it's crazy because to your point on that, I can't tell you how many times I go on Instagram and I just see random posts of like, man says that such and such and such and such, man goes viral for saying that, women should have 10 toes on their forehead or like just some right. random thing. And I'm like, who is this person? Yeah, like, yeah. And it's all, it's always some random podcaster, some random person I've never heard of. And I'm like, who, like, what, what, first of all, who are you and when's my turn? Yeah. But. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's like every time I hear of some newly canceled, micro-influencer, content creator, someone like you said that I've, I'm not familiar with, but now everyone has a very strong opinion about them. It's like, wow. So it's like this job market actually is so diverse that like there are going to be people making a living that I never even see or encounter or I'm never aware of, which makes sense because it's like, I mean, I have to feel like very close with my audience. I feel surrounded by them all the time because I'm like, I'm doing this for, for them. I want them to like it. But I'm, I mean, I'm not delusional and I know that it's not the whole world, you know, it's like a, it's like a community or a subsection of the internet who happens to be aware of my content. And there are plenty of people who have never heard of me and probably never will, um, just because like their algorithm is not pushing them towards my videos. It's like a, they're in a different section of the internet. Um, and yeah, it's like the goal there is like when I'm making content, like to try to broaden that as much as possible, like reach as many people as possible. Because I do feel like, you know, there's a chance a portion of people who happen to see it would be interested if they encountered it, but you never know. So you just gotta get in front of their, their eyeballs. But yeah, it's like, I can't even, so yeah, like I don't even need to have known this YouTuber who said something controversial to then be wanna be in the comments and be like, oh, canceled. It's like, they were never, they were never not canceled to you. Like, you don't, I don't know them. I've never seen their content, but, it's that other part of the internet that to, to, it's like a double-edged sword. People love to share their opinions. 
Um, so that's why comment sections can get so spicy. It's like everyone wants to weigh in, whether because whether I know that YouTuber or blogger or not, like he said something divisive and that made me feel a way that I wanted to share my experience of it and explain why, you know, my perspective is this or that. It's, it's, I feel like it's all stemming from the human kind of like nature. We want to connect with each other. We want to share our stories. We want to, in hopes that someone else says, I see that in myself too. And I relate to that, you know, it's like, um, it's very human, but it's also completely inhuman, the scale at which we are able to do it now, you know, like sharing my feelings with someone or thousands of people across the world within uh, the same, at the same time simultaneously, it's like our early human ancestors could never, like they, their heads would explode with that kind of like social circle. So it's so bizarre. Exactly, because now you don't have, like, like, like now you don't even have to be greenlit to be canceled. It's so funny, it's like, Yes. Oh, okay. Cool. You can just be like someone Which who's means- like works at a car dealership and like someone videotaped you being rude or saying something racist and then it's like you lost your job. You you can't get a new one. You're like you're canceled. Yeah. Which makes me wonder what Dorian Renaud from Real Friends of WeHo thinks about this cuz we know he has very strong feelings on content <laughs> Yes. That to me I was like let's not do this Dorian like you have yeah, I, I, but I was also like, aren't you going to be doing the same game if you're on this show, like promoting it? And, um, and the I only reason you're agreeing with it is because you're from reality television. Like, we know you from College Hill. Yeah, what is College Hill? What is that? That was an old reality show on BET back in the day, which okay. they brought it back, but now with celebrities. But back in the day, it was, they would just drop cameras onto a college campus and like pick like six or seven people to like come and stay in a house but like it would follow them on campus and like going around doing their college thing and that was the first time i ever thought yeah then his nudes leaked later on and then he became the skin guy i see that's that's good to know because i was kind of like wait where do i where where like many of the people in the cast of real friends of weho i was like i wonder how they got involved you know, like what was their path to stardom before this? And, you know, like some of them, like uh, they're very upfront about it. Like, uh, was it James Bond being like, oh, they wouldn't have even asked me if, if my husband had said yes, you know, type of thing. I was like, okay, some self-awareness, we appreciate it. But with Dorian, I'm like, if he if he had been on that reality show now, like if, if College Hill took place, that first appearance when he was on, was now it's like you would be parlaying that into a social media career uh because like that's it's what you're literally do what you're doing now <laughs> like yeah, yeah. like you're like you're choosing to go back into that arena to promote your actual business it's like what what like you're on a show with a bunch of content creators you do know that right you know what i felt but when you love todrick oh yeah i know todrick who is a social media like his he's a youtuber i don't know what else you i mean no one knows him from American Idol, like, I mean, many do, sure. That's where he got his initial, like, fan base, I'm sure. But I didn't know that it was, like, specifically American Idol that launched his platform. I was like, oh, I I thought maybe he was on, like, uh, some, you know, America's Got Talent or something. Like, I had no idea. So, yeah, it was very interesting. I felt like with Dorian saying all that, (laughs) I was like, I feel like maybe we're just forgetting that, like, the, uh, 
the producers are trying to make a storyline. So if they're asking me all about, tell us more about how much you hate TikTokers and how, how do you respect them at all for what they do, blah, blah, blah. I'd be like, why? Cause you got a fucking TikToker on this cast who's gonna like confront me later. I already know it, but um, maybe it's been a while since he, well, in his reality experience before was not probably heavily produced. It sounds like it was more cinema verte, like just cameras following him, true documentary style. So not realizing you're being manipulated into supporting a storyline and maybe saying more about <laughs> your about not understanding how TikTokers or influencers exist um, when you're on a show that's going to inevitably have TikTokers and influencers on it. Yeah, because College Chill was early 2000s, like not even 2010. It was like early 2000s, maybe late 2000s at the most, but. I, 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 but I was like, you're you, like you're like one of the OGs in that kind of sense. Even though you were only on the show for one season, it's not like you were like on the hills back in the day. But still, it's like you're from that arena. But you know, I digress. Go buy butter skincare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, I forgot the skincare. I was like, okay, so yeah, I wonder how much of that would have been possible for him. I mean, I'm sure he would have still been a successful business person, but. Did his face and his name recognition afford him opportunity later in life? It's like, yeah, he was. I mean, back then when it was just television, just cable, you were the, in, the, the influencer of that time, like a real person who is kind of like plucked from obscurity. And then you're- Not to mention most of the people he has in his ad campaigns are influencers and reality television stars. So it's weird to me that yeah. you have this strong opinion about influencers, yet the influencers are your marketing. Totally. Okay, sure. That's how I God really bless. feel like he he maybe wasn't thinking those things through. It's like, have you ever been like in an interview and you're just like, it's like this psychological need to say what you think people want to hear. And I think that's a dangerous place to be when you're uh, talking to a reality TV host, because it's like, suddenly I'm like swept up by the cameras and the blah, blah, blah. And I just want, you know, I want them to use me in the show. I want, I don't want to say relevant things. And it seems like they really want me to say this. So let's just say it. And then it wouldn't be till like the drive home where I'm like, wait, did I just, did I just talk trash about every influencer ever? And <laughs> like, how is that going to come back? How are they going to use that now? Right. You know, like they weren't just asking out of curiosity, like they were looking for sound bites. So I can't imagine, I would, I would, I would struggle <laughs> being on a show like Real Friends of WeHo. <laughs> you know, I almost did not that show specifically, but I started to film a reality show this summer and like things kind of fell out. Like I ended up not being able to finish it. But okay. I knew like there, there was this hyper awareness that I walked in with that I was like, I either have to let this go or fix in on it because I'm either gonna come off too aware and too camera focused, or I'm or I'm gonna come off completely unhinged. One of the two is gonna happen. <laughs> right. And I mean, it's like, then at that point, it's like, well, I better just be unhinged then. So at least that's gonna, at least that's not breaking the fourth wall, which real friends of WeHo, I think we had several cast members who were doing that. For me, I was like, like uh, the, like, Todrick, for example, often talking to friends about how right. he was literally how he's grabbing come off. the cameraman. <laughs> yes, yes, oh yeah. Puts his hand in shock on the camera. I was like, we know that you know that you're on a TV show, but you can't grab the crew. <laughs> like, come on. And the show like, itself, like, 
like a part of it was kind of cool seeing like like if they would have just left it at us being able to see the cameraman in the shot i think that would have been kind of cool but Todrick literally grabbing the cameraman talking to producers bringing them into the conversation i was like okay this is too much yeah too exactly much. i would have liked it if they like i think the crew and the camera and the and therefore the audience can be a member of the cast you know can be included in the storyline um where it's like oh cool like these are just regular real friends in WeHo who are aware that it's an abnormal situation to have a camera crew around them so that does come up but I, I don't want to see actual like wheels turning in Todrick's head of being like talking to Issa Rae about or no that wasn't Todrick who's speaking to Issa Rae but they were having multiple conversations throughout the cast about Oh, they told me not to, who was it? I think it was Dorian even, who was like, people told me not to do this show or um, they, you know, are warning me. I heard that it saying that this show will do nothing for my career. I was like, yes. why are you here? Oh my God. He's like, it's probably gonna hurt it if anything. And I was like, we know that, we know that, but don't, we don't want to hear it while we're watching don't it. Because it. it's like, oh God, <laughs> yeah. It was so uncomfortable. We just want to see like, it happen. Yeah, exactly. I'd rather it just play out. <laughs> But it's like the there was something very de demystifying, disillusioning about that specifically when he was like, I don't think it's gonna help my career at all. I think it's gonna, if anything, it has the ability to hurt it. It was like, I mean, of course you think that everyone that would be everyone's fear going into this, but why is that the subject of this interview? Like, and my example I think that I made in my review of the show was like, you know, the Real Housewives. Um, every season it's like oh I'm launching my new wine and today we're having the wine launch party and it's like clearly no you wouldn't be having this party if it weren't for the show like you were asked to throw parties to create set pieces for the show which I know they did on real uh, friends like they, they were I had a source on the crew and they said they would get a budget to throw these parties they would just they would get to decide everything the, the reason for the party whose house it was going to be at, but they had to throw a party like every week. <laughs> and it's like Real Housewives, we knew that the the reason that they're throwing the party is, is arbitrary, it's all made up. But they're not sitting there being like, oh yeah, we're throwing this party because uh, you know, you can't tell that it's for the show. You're 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 willing to suspend your disbelief that like, oh, they really just throw fabulous parties all year round when it's really like, they do this girl trip once a year and it's when the cameras are rolling it's like there's three months that they're shooting and everything happens dramatic in their life during that three months otherwise they're all just like posting you know uh sponsored posts for for hair vitamins and stuff you know it's like they're taking care of their kids they're living their lives speaking of sponsored posts what the hell happened to flat tummy tea no one's hawking that anymore yeah, that's a good point. I know that it really fell out of fashion because of several, probably YouTube type exposés where they're like, it's just oolong tea, it's just laxative tea. Um, I remember I did a post on Instagram, like I was still working my office job and I was sponsored by Fit Tea, Skinny Tea, something like that. And I was surprised, it actually got me to stop drinking coffee for a while because it is just super caffeinated oolong tea but i think it was like the last possible <laughs> era where i could have 
even endorse that product without, and I wasn't doing it from a weight loss point of view. I was like, oh, it gives me energy and I feel whatever their compliance language was, or it was like, I feel healthy and fit. It's like, no, I mean, it's just tea, but also it's not really, it's part of that toxic diet culture. You know, the Kardashians used to promote that stuff all the time. And while having a Carl Jr. commercial airing at the exact same time. Yes, exactly. It's like, uh, that's the whole thing of like, um, you know, it's, you're expected to be like one of the boys who can eat a cheeseburger and loves wings and stuff, but also you're magically, you have the body of a supermodel, you're, you have no struggle with weight or weight issues. There's this great video on YouTube about Gilmore Girls. I don't know if you ever watched Gilmore Girls. Yes. But so it was like about the way that show treated food and how Lorelai and Rory were constantly ch- bragging about how much they could eat. Like, oh, we ate 13 slices of bread and 13 hot wings for oh the great Thanksgiving uh, stuff your face marathon. And it's like you rarely see them eat on camera. You rarely never. you never see them talk about exercise or struggling with weight. The characters who do exercise or care about their appearance are sh- are like Paris are shown as being uptight and almost like manic in that pursuit, and it's like they're creating this feeling. And I remember watching that show as a as a very young teenager and having like thoughts like that, where I was like, okay, so I really I gotta be thin, but also make it seem like I'm not trying to be thin. And it's like, what? Like, why is that the message? (laughs) You know, it's like so bizarre. And the creator of the show, she doesn't even get that she's doing this. Like, she doesn't want to acknowledge it. It's like um, Amy Sherman Palladino. She's like, I don't know. I don't I don't give a fuck if I if I promote eating disorder culture. Like, that's not what it's about. It's like, so you were just writing cool characters who are cool. And it's like, why is that cool, though? You know, to be not of any problem just have a thin white body and everyone else is trying to, to be you. That. Aye, aye. That's a good video. That's a great video, actually. Y'all go watch that. But let's dive into you a little bit because I, I really, really want to get to know how you've gotten to be this comedic culture critic icon that you are. Thank you. Because you are the most. Come on. Oh my gosh. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Nashua, New Hampshire, which is like uh, right on the border of Massachusetts and really close to Boston. My parents are both from Boston. Um, So New England upbringing. And then I moved to New York for college. I went to NYU and spent six years there before coming out to California. Nice. How does your hometown influence the person that you are today? That's a really good question. I mean, like, it in, in so many ways that I'll never know because it's like, it is where I grew up. But sometimes things will come to me where I'm like, that was a uniquely small town experience. Like, for example, my first boyfriend, we walked downtown once, like, a few weeks. I was 16. You know, I was 15. He was 17. And we walked downtown holding hands and I remember now like dozens, like dozens of people yelling slurs out their car window at us. And I mean, I had been out of the closet since 13. So like I was, I had been gay for a minute, but like 
So like, I was used to being treated with more acceptance, frankly, because my parents accepted it. They, they figured it out in their own way. And then my um, friends at school, like they all loved it. They, they wanted it to be like real life will and grace. So when they, when there were these other people who I was like, those look like people that my older sister goes to school with. Those look like adults. Those are people who, you know, I don't interact with on a day-to-day basis, but clearly have a, have a very interesting opinion on me holding hands with my boyfriend. Like we're just two literal baby-faced kids walking down town and they're yelling shit. They want to throw stuff at us. It's like, um, I was like, that was a very bizarre kind of experience. And I realized now I think I don't feel this sense of like home there as much. Like, yes, I have people there who I really care about and love. And when I go back, it's always familiar and I enjoy seeing those people again. But for the most part, I'm like, "Mm." they don't, they never really did too much to make me feel like I was part of the fabric of that community in that. But I mean, it's not them. It's not that town specifically. It's heteronormative, cis heteronormative culture being the zeitgeist, being, but it, it just highlighted for me like, oh, I think a lot of what I felt throughout my whole life uh, growing up there was invalidated in a way that I didn't even realize because it's all I knew. Um, but like my sister, um, who I'm very close with in age, she still lives there. She loves it. She never would want to move. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I might feel that way if I never felt, if I ever felt at home there, you know, like I felt more at home the second I moved to New York, second I snuck out to go to these parties in Boston when I was still living in New Hampshire, because it was like more, I found, I was finding my people, you know, Um, other queer people and people who didn't make me feel different for every little thing that I do that I now recognize as like the actions of the either a closeted queer person or growing up queer person or or just the LGBTQ plus community like those are things that we embrace about each other um so I think it, it led me to realize like okay yeah even though I'm close with my family there's still a need for a chosen family because they, through no, everyone's just doing their best. My parents did their best raising me. They're great parents, but they could not give me what I get from my my gay friends who are their age. That makes perfect sense. Um, did you always have dreams of being in film? Yes. Uh, I feel like that's a. It was a. It was a relief for me when I realized that um, another. signature move for for gay people and queer people everywhere is the desire to be famous because I wanted to be famous my whole life I was always like as a kid I was like I want to be a movie star I want to be Zach Hansen from Hansen I want to be Dakota Fanning in Charlotte's Web I want to be I wanted to be a child star Hannah Montana like I wanted to be on Disney Channel Uh, but for a long time I mean I also then discovered filmmaking and I wanted to be um you know, the director talking behind the scenes or like um, on set with green screens and uh, actors and writing scary movies and all of that. It was like, I wanted to be in the biz for sure. Um, And 
but yeah, specifically as at its earliest point, it was like I just wanted to be a star. Um, but I think later on, it became more about the artistic excitement, the the idea of making art as like a career uh, that others get to see. The collaborative process of filmmaking, I, re I find really exciting. I relate to that so much because I really wanted to be, uh, well, a star per se, but I really just wanted to be in the biz. But I say that because I actually did like audition for, for, for Disney when I was like eight, even though I was really like a Nickelodeon kid at heart, Ooh. you know? So, but I, but I, but I, I was really one of those self-starting kids that just did stuff and didn't tell their parents about it until it happened. And they were like, oh yeah. So like, I, so like, I, I like self-taped an audition tape, mailed it to Disney, got a call back and then told my mom, I was like, oh yeah, they want me to come to, yeah, they want me to, what? That's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Story of my life, right? But Seriously, then, that's so cool. Thank you. But then as I got older, I realized I really just wanted to talk about this type of stuff. Like, like when people asked me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? My number one answer was always being a critic. Like I was one, one, and it's to be the person that like from the New York Times, this movie is going to be the greatest impactful da, 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 da. or like do the album reviews in the Rolling Stone. Like, like I always wanted to do that type of stuff growing up. So it started with, oh, I want to be that some more. So I want to talk about that. Yeah, that's so, you know, sorry, is it my mic that's giving feedback? I hope I'm not giving bad audio. Is it sound okay to you? No, you're good. Okay. No, you're good. Um, I feel like we had a lot in common growing up because I I was always secretly auditioning for things too. I, I did not get as far as actual Disney Channel. I would like send in audition tapes to these student films in Boston um, and then tell my mom like, you gotta take me. But I also loved when people spoke about behind the scenes things. I loved the actor talking about their character in the third person. They're like, oh yeah, Hannah, she's just an everyday girl who, um, you know, I was like, what is this? So like their job is to like be this other person like that. It just made it seem. And then like movie reviews or album reviews. It's like, where are people getting these ideas from? It's so like heady uh, and so intellectual sounding and the way they analyze it. It's like, I loved, I was like, Am I, I'm never going to be able to think like that. Like how to think of things critically or analytically. It seemed like such like a cool girl thing to do. Um, so <laughs> it's like, I never thought I would have it in me. But then you go, you, you gain actual work experience like we did, like either in school or working on set or working in the beauty industry is where I ended up. And so it's like, oh, suddenly I do have something to say about all that because like I would have been in that room, you know, in my old job and I would have, here's how I would have reacted or this is how common it seems to me. This is what seems abnormal. And you start saying that online and then you realize like, oh, and it's being watched by people who were where I was when I was watching those those interviews and being like, oh, I'm getting insight that I wouldn't have had because I don't have experience in that field. But, and so then you're like, oh, I get it. Okay, it's like thought leadership. Exactly. I always say that the person that changed my life is John Waters because the first time that I ever watched him do the commentary on the Mommy Dearest DVD, 
it changed my life forever. I was like, this is what I want to do forever is just talk about movies, talk about TV, talk about music, and just talk about like the, the like intellectual side of it, the behind the scenes, the, the um, things that you don't think about when you're actually watching that scene. I right. literally watched John's commentary more than I watched the actual movie. It's so I good. love that. It's a, and that's like a, a perfect example of someone who like assigns meaning or is giving like social commentary in stuff that upon first viewing as a child, especially you would be like, this is just silly, you know? And then you're like, oh no, he's saying something about something. And to hear them explain that, I, I love, oh, there are certain movies that I would watch the behind the scenes uh, featurette on more than the actual movie a lot. Like Spy Kids, for example. I don't know why, but I love that. I love <laughs> the special effects. Chicken Run also, because I was really into stop motion animation. But um, yours is, yeah, I think <laughs> a lot more. It shows how you were probably had a higher level of intelligence uh, as a kid than I was, because you were watching already better movies than I was. Um, but it's it's still the same. I, I recognize that like spirit. It's like one. I just want to be there, creating it, making it, thinking about it. At, you know, and assigning meaning to the images that I'm putting on screen. Like I, it's not that I have this viewpoint that nobody else has. I mean, we all have a unique viewpoint, but it's not like I'm the only one who has something to say. But I want to just say it. I want to I want to give myself opportunities to say it, and then make something out of it that people watch and then they say something about it you know it's like again this like human desire to really be understood to be connecting with other people right absolutely and like that was me growing up like like i always bought dvds and like vhs tapes so kids what vhs tapes are (laughs) (laughs) but i always bought them for the behind the scenes featurettes because i always found the making of more interesting than the actual movie like i could not buy a dvd without watching the making of first and then watch the movie yes and then watch it again the making of after to be like oh yeah yeah absolutely so were your dreams of being in film supported by your village growing up or did you find yourself being your own cheerleader in these endeavors? You know, I think as the years went on, oh, always supportive. First of all, they were always very supportive. My family, like, um, there's, I did a video on it. I was 12 when I won a film festival that America Online was holding. And then I was on the Sharon Osbourne talk show to like, be interviewed about that at some point and you know my mom flew out to LA with me and um and then I and I was like I had my 15 minutes uh in in Nashua New Hampshire of like I got back from that and I was like doing morning radio shows and like uh, doing newspaper interviews about going out to Hollywood and and having this experience of being interviewed on on the talk show and from then on out it was it was like every every school year i felt like teachers knew like oh you're the one who you're our little filmmaker our little steven spielberg uh, you know like it was it, the reputation preceded me uh, throughout middle school and so i always felt not only supported but i was like i felt the pressure <laughs> i was like i gotta now like win another contest get into film school become Steven Spielberg, who like, I don't even really, he's not my favorite director, just the only one that everyone in New Hampshire knew. 
hormones, if we're honest, but we love to see it. Yeah, thank you. I feel like it was just like, that's like uh, suburban America. The only, you name, ask him to name a film director and it's Steven Spielberg. Um, it's like, I get it. E.T. E was great when you were a kid. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> phone home now. Yeah. So I felt I felt supportive in that way. I felt like they wanted me to succeed in in that, um, and probably to the extent where I was like putting a lot of pressure on myself to to get amazing grades so that I could go to UCLA and become. You know, I just wanted to follow the footsteps that I thought every great mainstream director would would go through. But um, it wasn't until I think I was thinking of my 15 and 16 where I was like, okay, but maybe it's not about following a, a prescribed path. It's more about like having an interesting existence so that you can form a worldview that is worth sharing. And that's when I started, you know, going off the rails a little bit and sneaking out and yeah, I don't know, interacting with the underbelly of, you know, the things teenagers can get up to, specifically teenagers, gay teenagers on the internet, interacting with adults, all of that. Like, it's like, we can get into trouble. And many of us do. Um, and so I felt like then it started to be like, okay, now I feel less supported. It's like, it's like I'm being, I'm doing it wrong. I'm, I'm I can't do it this gay. I can't be queer. Uh, it started to feel like then there was like a sense of rebellion to it. Um, but when it was like, oh, he wants to make movies? Great. We support, I, I felt supported. But then when I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just like trying to find who I am. That's when it felt like everyone wanted me to be, just go back to being a kid again. Mm. That makes perfect sense. So what do you think going into that did you have those thoughts going into film school or was that something like where like you were in the midst and you were like, oh, I'm here, I'm in it, I'm doing what, you know, all these people thought I would do. And now I'm like, okay, now what? It was definitely before getting to film school. I think that whole turning point was the reason why I decided to go New York rather than LA for film school. Um, because I wanted more I don't know. I guess I saw it as like an opportunity for more worldly experiences where it was like, uh, you can do anything in New York. You can be anyone you want. Um, there's a high threshold for bizarre behavior. Uh, any, you know, the characters in New York is just like, you can be anyone. So I think then once I got there, you realize like, oh shit, like this is one of the world's best film schools. And we're all hometown heroes who won a fucking movie contest when we were 12 or something. And we're not all gonna be named directors. We're not all gonna be prestige filmmakers. Some of us are gonna be gaffers. Some of us are gonna be, you know, unsung heroes like the like the camera operator or second AC. And that was a lot for me because I was like, well, what if I'm not even remotely special in my viewpoints and like it's actually I'm gonna find myself at like always struggling just to like get in with the directors who like you know because even in film school it'd be like I was working on movies or student films and these kids would be like 
traveling the world to to debut them at festivals and like they're still like I can see the people that I went to school with who I'm like we're gonna be hearing their name for my whole life like they're making it they're they're building a name for themselves it's really impressive but at the time it was like fuck I'm not them I'm not them I'm not on the right path what am I doing um and so that whole aspect of like realizing that's their journey I'm on mine and I'm still going to get what I want I still have the chance of building the life that I want it's just a different timeline you know it was scary because you see people succeeding out of college and it's like oh god I went into an off I went into a retail job then an office job and then like rehab and then back to re office job like it was like I was for a while there not sure I'd ever be able to make anything um substantial that the public eye would be aware of so god oh the validation of like when the youtube thing actually started working out you know because um it was like okay the whole time i had it i had i i got myself you know it's like i needed more experiences i needed more development (laughs) character development before i was given my um what I feel like would be the moment that I would have been jealous of if I saw someone, if I saw someone else in my class doing this at age 20, you know. And then at the same time, it's like, and I don't want, I wouldn't have wanted this type of YouTube success at age 22. I would have really said a lot more stupid things and been less professional and treated it less like a career that I wanted to, you know, draw some longevity from. So it's like, okay, I got it when I needed it. I got it when I was ready for it, and. And now I can really feel truly happy for the people who are succeeding and have been succeeding and will succeed before and after. Cause it's like, there's room for all of us. We just gotta, just gotta keep working and have patience, I guess is what I learned. I understand that on so many different levels because I grew up a dancer. And so people always expected me to be like, you know, the next so-and-so-and-so-and-so, or, you know, do this and do that. And I thought that those were the things that I had to do. Like, like I grew up being told I'm going to be Janet Jackson's choreographer. Like, it's going to happen. And that's what I'm meant to do. And so that was the direction of my life. And now I see people who I were on dance teams with in school dancing for Missy Elliott and, like, dancing for Sierra. And, like, I'm genuinely happy for them. But I did have that moment of being like, oh shit I'm behind right I was what happened but then I realized I was like oh that's just not my path like yeah I enjoy performing yeah I enjoy dance but really my true power comes through my voice like Mm. and I'm a talker and I and it comes through my mind and so I had that realization that you had with your YouTube channel when I started this specific podcast because I had never done anything like, like I've done a lot of different things. I've made music, I've choreographed, I've been a professional dancer, I've done drag, I've done a little bit of everything, right? But I never had the gratification and the satisfaction personally that I had until I started doing this podcast. And I was like, I get to talk to some of my favorite people all the time, like the creatives that I love to watch and talk about and binge watch, like you, for example, I can actually just reach out to you and be like, hey, can I talk to you about your life? And they agree to it. 
you know and it's like it's crazy the people who i've been able to actually connect with like you know people from drag race and america's next top model and you know jim jones who i've been listening to his music since i was like 12. like i was like how do i get like that was the moment where i was like oh this is what i was supposed to be doing that's why that stuff didn't go the way that it was supposed to go or that's why i didn't you know feel as satisfied in those successes was because it wasn't truly what i was supposed to be doing right and it's like here you are doing these amazing things and living this life you kind of didn't even dream about because that's so far from the benchmark of success that your mom's friend had for you when you were a kid. When I was a kid, it would be like, you're gonna be, uh, you know, we're gonna see, you're gonna be the next Steven Spielberg. So then when I'm not the next Steven Spielberg because I don't want to be, it turns out, it's like, at first it's like, oh, damn it, I'm letting my mom's friend down. I'm letting my, my seventh grade English teacher down. All of these voices, these random memories that build up to create a sense of who I think I'm supposed to be. And then it's like, that can be really hard to to like, to live with at first. And I felt, and I think that contributed to like a lot of destructive um, behaviors where I'm like, I've already ruined my chance. I'm not gonna make it, this is a, you know, like throw it all out. And then you start to realize like, you get this validation. It's like much more, I got this more authentic sense of validation from doing something that's just like expressing myself and then people love it or they watch it and they think you're funny or they want to they want more and exactly as you said you start to be like okay wait okay yeah so this is this feels like me and it feels uniquely me it's authentically and uniquely me rather than me just reaching some mainstream standard that people who don't even understand what a, what the industry is like had for me and then you realize like all of those things that people said i was going to do it was a compliment. They were being nice, but I was too young to to think, "Oh, thanks so much." And in my head, like, "Okay, but I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna do something else. Just watch." You know, it was it was more like, "Okay, I'll do it. I'll do my best." Or or squandered this life. So, what a trip! Yeah, to be creative as a young person, I think is like that's such a unique experience because you have that um, you have those opinions coming in already of what you've done and what you're going to do next and what you should do now. And it's also uninformed of the person who you really are content. Yeah, exactly. The, the soul inside that had the, that was sensitive enough to put out anything expressive or creative. It's like, we're obviously as creatives all going to have a very specific point of view on things and that means we like I've always just loved to do things my own way like I don't want to do that like I find a different way of doing it that gets the job done but it's easier for me or more fun or whatever you know like um and so it's like finding a new way of doing things is like I think one of the greatest feelings and uh, it just like we had to I had to do that with my own identity and I was like just learning to not take on everything that people think that I wanted or assume that I, you know, like with you and Janet Jackson, it's like, wow. And they probably assume that that's my ultimate goal is to choreograph for Janet Jackson. And maybe now it will be because I'm an influential, uh, easily influenced child. Um, and then kind of like learning to escape that expectation as we've had to do as queer people or, you know, women are 
you know, faced with expectations being put on them every day, that they have microaggressions uh, that they deal with. It's like there's, we all have, society tries to put everybody in a box. It's tough, but rewarding when you are able to make your way outside of that, for me. Absolutely. What was the most important thing you learned in film school that applies to what you do today? I think what comes to mind the most is uh, essentially self-editing, right? Like, um, cut anything that is not moving the story forward, right? Like, why is that in there? Why did he say that? Why is that shot? Why that scene? Because it applies to film, but also writing like creative writing or, or persuasive writing, nonfiction writing. It's like, why are you saying stuff that doesn't matter? Why are you saying stuff that doesn't matter? It made me realize like, oh, people don't want their time wasted. They like emotionally potent things. And the best work that I see and stuff that sticks with me and I think stands the test of time is like, they just conveyed like a very broad volume of emotions like something i relate to something that made me want to cry or laugh or whatever while also moving their character story forward while also making me envision myself in that world and it was one sentence with seven words you know it's like we are not wasting other people's time we are not wasting our words we're choosing our words carefully um and that's why like i really have a hard time sitting and listening to people who just speak too much because it's like you're saying the same thing over again Stop restating that. We get it. Like, make your point more clear. Um, so I think it was that sort of being able to listen to myself from the audience or the end user perspective and compare it to what I was seeing that was successful in the world and being like, that's a quicker and easier way of having said that. Like, that shot is genius because it loads all of these uh, layers into one frame. Like you're telling a story with the lighting with the dialogue with the uh, facial expression with the camera framing itself like and that's where i think like real my favorite or rather like kind of art or creative pieces come from it's like stuff that has a ton of detail and thought put into it but if you're a passive viewer you might not even catch it all because that's when you can that's when you have something to say as a commentator or a reviewer because you're like i'm unpacking all of these layers that the average viewer might not get but because i feel like I speak similar languages with this artist or like he's putting stuff in there for me and it's there for anyone who wants to watch it and you know maybe someone will only see that dialogue and it'll, it'll break something in them that they remember forever some people might like that that framing they'll never forget but some people you can also look at it and rewatch it and See all of it, you know, try and get, try and understand how all of it is working together to make it this thing that you'll never forget or that changes lives. Um, so yeah, I think just being really judicious with your edits, shots, planning, like you cannot just, it's rare that you're able to just do this stuff on accident. You know, I think having a plan in place and being intentional, intentional with what I'm doing and why, um, at least then I can use that as a measure of how effective the piece was. Then. I love learning. I love thinking it through that lens and like being really exacting with my words, cuts, shots, um, and all of it. You know, cast who who I got to play at the look of somebody, the music that was chosen. It's like you can really. It's every single step of the process. Uh, you have to know why you're choosing it and 
if someone asks you, I like to know like, oh, I could talk for three hours about why I chose that, you know? Because um, then I don't have you. Like the, the movie does all that talking for you or whatever the piece. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, it's something that I have consciously um, had to teach myself because I've had a whole past on YouTube as well. And I kind of learned that through doing my own edits. And I was like, oh, this is going too long because I'm saying this in two different spots. Oh, I don't need to say this here. This would probably go better here. Or I understand like, I, I don't need to say that because this already said it for me. Or, you know, like I, that makes complete sense for sure. Yeah, and then it's like, if I'm gonna say something twice or three times, there's a reason you're hearing it that number of times. There's a reason I'm reminding them at the beginning, middle, and end. It's like, cause that is the theme. Uh, or whatever it's like it, it will not be there will not be a crazy amount of things being repeated so like when you hear something repeated even subconsciously as a viewer you take that home as like an overarching theme you know it's like you when you when you when i speak the right amount or when i do the right amount or like use enough restraint then the areas where i break the rules become even more kind of impactful or powerful i love that kind of it's intentional yeah for sure what's your favorite movie my favorite movie is whatever happened to baby jane oh, love. And like, that's one that i feel like is just so powerful like every shot and every line and the performance is like um i remember the first time i watched it like my eyes widening <clears throat> when Blanche was like spinning around in the wheelchair, like just like feeling so trapped, you know, cause she got served the dead crow and it was like, oh, the horror of this. It's like, she's trapped in every sense of the word. Like she's trapped in this family. She's trapped loving this sister who is horribly abusive. She's trapped physically upstairs. She's trapped in the chair, in her body, in her life. And it's like with all of her choices. And it's like, they're dying to do this. It's like this delirious fucking panic. And I was like, I feel that, I feel that. And I'm terrified and it's just like, to, to some people it just seems like, a, it's like the movies back then seem more simple perhaps, or like uh, it wouldn't, or they seem more theatrical or more uh, mid-Atlantic or transatlantic accent, you know? But it's like, to me, it's like, well, that's just the, the, the trend of how people spoke on screen at the time. But the movie itself would still be made today with these same, like it was a well done movie like everything had a reason it was shot in a way that conveyed the emotion it's just like i was in it i was enthralled um with every frame the first time i saw it and that's the kind of experience i i like love at the movies absolutely love that i kind of feel the same way about my favorite movies um because <laughs> i've got two that's high for one it's torch song trilogy and um and um Boys in the Band. Okay. I don't think I've seen either. <laughs> They're both... Uh, just about all of my favorite movies came out before I was ever thought of. So, <laughs> so, there's, so there's part of that. But they have that same type of processing in it where like every shot you feel like is intentionally telling you something about something that you're about to see or it's giving you details about something that you didn't see that's going to inform you about something that that's going to happen and right. 
just the way that the shots moved through each other, it was like, it just all felt like one flowing piece. It was so, such a good movie. Such a good movie. Ryan, the, what was the first trilogy? Torch Song Trilogy. It's the Harvey Firestein movie um, that was a Broadway play with Estelle Getty from The Golden Girls. She played the mom, and then Anne Bancroft played the mom in the movie. But, um, and that was, I think, one of Matthew Broderick's first roles, too, maybe. Okay. Maybe not great movie and then boys in the band um came out i think in 1970 maybe um ryan murphy remade it recently for netflix and like a few years ago with um the guy from big bang theory he's in it he's playing the main character michael um but i haven't watched the remake yet because i'm too attached to the original so i'm scared he's gonna fuck it up but (laughs) i don't want to start talking about ryan murphy (laughs) i will never stop (laughs) Am I the only one that, that that thinks that Ryan Murphy peaked at Nip Tuck? Oh my God! Thank you. Yes, peaked at Nip Tuck, uh, Nip Tuck, and was like on a, a rapidly downward spiral by the first episode of Glee. I was like, we are flanderizing ourselves at episode one now. I was like, wait, wait, wait. The thing is, though. Yeah, yeah. Because the only reason that I watched Glee was because of Nip Tuck. I was like, well, the guy that made. Nip Tuck has to this, this has to be incredible, right? And yeah. then you watch it, like, oh. <laughs> and then you like are gaslit by the whole world who's like embracing this as the show of the century. <laughs> and I'm literally sitting here having a stroke by the first back break. I'm like, what? Why? <laughs> totally. <laughs> anybody can talk about on Facebook. Oh my god. No, I was like, we're so basic as a country, as a world. <laughs> that's, that's when I knew. I was like, oh, I actually am intelligent. Like, like, yeah. like, I was like, oh, okay. Okay. The world needs me <laughs> to, to, to say things about things. I need to use my voice, clearly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I picked through your IMDB channel a little bit. Oh yeah, I see that you have experience in movies, both from the makeup department and from being in movies on camera. Which was more gratifying for you? Oh, oh, on camera, I would say for sure. You know, like I loved makeup department for what it taught me about working in film, specifically like the translation of a three-dimensional object to a flat pain um and like that i feel like is something that people need to keep in mind throughout every department like um how to create the illusion of depth painting with light adding dynamic movement to the camera and what that can do for the storytelling and makeup really i think made me think in those terms but something about being on camera especially after being a theater kid you know on the stage and realizing like there's real life, there's on stage, and there's on camera. And it's like very different behaviors that come across as natural. You cannot act the same way across all three and have each one appear natural. Some of the things, something's gonna be off. So like um, the process of like now, after being on camera, seeing myself on camera and being like, oh, what am I doing there? Like, why am I? doing it that way what is like it's, it seems so wrong being unhappy with how it came up because i knew how i wanted it to look or 
what I would look like if I was doing that naturally. And then realizing like, okay, here's what the kind of movements that make sense for a close-up. Or when you have a microphone on, like you don't need to talk that loud, you know, it's like, um, or seeing things with sound effects or, or realizing that like, I don't need to, I don't need to go crazy here. There's going to be music. There's going to be cutaways, all of these things that impact the final performance uh, as opposed to being on stage and giving a monologue. And that process of watching myself on camera and seeing how different directors try to get a natural performance out of you. Sometimes they don't even try, you know, sometimes they're just like, mm, I hope it, I hope it's good. <laughs> you know, it's like realizing how you can direct people or the right way to do it. And then for my own performance, like what reads as, what reads for the tone, for the shot, for the, the, the script, for the type of camera they're shooting on. It's like that all, I feel like helped me understand really holistically the difference between real life and movies, you know? And like, once you can really master that, or it's like, that's not gonna look good on camera. That's not gonna, you know, like, the, right? Real life is boring. Real life is not pretty. Real life doesn't have the lighting. Here's how we, we attack that. We make it beautiful and gorgeous and cinematic, but in a way that still reads to the audience as not looking overly staged or placed, you know, like, um, I remember like having somebody come into a shot once where they were like, they needed to be sitting on the other side of a door. So I had them come in the door, like squatting on their knees. Um, cause I wanted them to come in with their head in the frame, not their knees. And I remember just, just, it just worked. Like when I saw it on camera, it was like, mm. it had the speed. It was, the framing was right. I saw the, his face at the right time. And it wasn't like, oh, here's someone's legs coming in and now he's squatting down. Like, that's not how you, it doesn't feel right. Even if it was how you do it in real life. Um, and then I realized like, oh, okay, yeah. If you don't, I'm not looking at this, blocking this in terms of real life natural movement. No one's seeing anything outside of this little frame. So like, be judicious with what you tell people to do. Let people know they're gonna be doing things differently than they would in real life. and give them the confidence to understand that like this for a reason I know I've thought of it trust me this is all and then people have the confidence to like to work with you because it's like I, I'm not afraid that I'm gonna look foolish I actually might feel foolish at first until I realize like this is somebody who knows camera or uh, knows film knows acting enough to like get a good performance out of me and sometimes it's just telling me to squat before I would squat normally or like walk like a duck into the frame like that's weird but okay um so being on camera and not getting that direction and then seeing the result i think was really valuable for me it makes perfect sense what do you think <clears throat> excuse me what do you think is the key to getting an actor's natural performance on camera because i see it it it, it takes me out of shows which is why i don't watch a lot of scripted content but i see a lot of actors acting yeah it's really distracting it's yeah. so distracting <laughs> i totally get that i have that too where i'm like why is it school play in here like it's giving school play and it's like there's it's hard to identify sometimes why that is but i think it's like all about 
and there are different schools of acting, different thoughts behind this. But for me, it's like, if I'm going to be acting, it's like, I've got to understand why I'm doing something from my perspective, my real life experience as a human person. No bad guy sees themselves as a bad guy. And now it's like, nobody does something horrible without thinking they need to. And it's like, I need to put myself right there, like get underneath that character and do it for a reason that makes sense. So like, if I'm told that I gotta go rip somebody's baby away from its mother, it's like, babe, you better fucking figure out a time in your life when you had to do something really terrible and you felt like you were killing somebody or you felt like you were ripping, you know, the most prized thing out of their hands and like, just put yourself there, but do it, you know, but change the action to stealing a baby. What a strange example, but you know, it's like, because that's just something I've never done. I've never had to do something that great but I have had to take things away from people that they thought they needed to live or they felt like was the, this was the worst thing that ever happened to them. I've had to deliver bad news. I've had to steal and cheat and and do shady things because I had some motive that I needed to accomplish, you know? So it's like, I've done things that I didn't want to do because I felt I had to. So it's like that empathy and understanding will help me do something on camera, help me inform the way that I say it and um, the way that I do it without seeming like an actor trying to look like they're doing that. Like, now I'm the bad guy stealing your baby. It's like, that's not how it's gonna be. It's gonna be you doing it. It needs to look like you, how you would do it. That's why you got cast. But you're bringing your body, your physicality, and your mannerisms. Yes, many actors more talented than me get to have to change those things, like change their physicality, embody somebody else, but especially like character actors, it's like your brain, you were hired for your unique way that you hold yourself and the way that you look. So like bring that to it. Um, so I think for directing somebody, it's like helping them come to the realization of what they need to do. Some, there's one pop girly who is really taken to like directing her music videos lately. And I saw behind the scenes and I'm like, She's telling these like pretty big name actors like just oh I I'll, let's see you do it like this blah 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 I want you to do it like blah blah and like just doing it and then having them copy it, which is pretty much like the number one rule that you don't do when you're directing is like just tell someone to copy what you're doing. It's like you want to help them come to that because maybe they'll do it in a way that's slightly different than you're picturing, but still it nails exactly what you're trying to do. Right, absolutely. Let's dive into YouTube a little bit. What can you? <laughs> Sorry, I'm um, on set of the of the live action remake of Baby's Kids. Please excuse me. <laughs> um, what what went into the decision to bring you to the YouTube platform? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I think I was fascinated by YouTube as a platform from its launch um, before the 2010s. Like I created a YouTube account the year it came out, started posting. Um, and I was already making movies at the time. So it was a very natural fit. Like I was like, oh, I can like put it online and send people a link. And um, then slowly watching that become a new type of celebrity. I remember Jenna Marbles, for example, like looking at her channel art and it being like new videos every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And being like, oh, so she just keeps making stuff all the time. And like, now she's like, seems really kind of like a big deal. 
but still didn't really think of it as something that I would do ever because I was still on this like path to becoming some sort of mainstream filmmaker in my mind. But throughout my time in college, I started studying commercial short form um, filmmaking and becoming interested in beauty and makeup. And obviously like that was like the height of the Instagram brow, beauty blogger, YouTube review. Like beauty was killing it on YouTube. It was all people talked about. And people were fascinated by the millions of dollars being generated by these creators. Um, so I went into beauty content, social media marketing on the beauty side of things. As a makeup artist, I felt like I had a really cool ability to help bring value to a brand because I, I knew camera, I could self-produce, I knew lighting, and I knew I had enough you know, experience with makeup to like sell the product to a makeup user. And so like the social media side on the beauty, in the beauty space, was fun. I loved making the content, but I hated the working for other people-ness of it all. You know, like I felt very social media literate um, and I'm working for Gen X brand owners who still thought they knew everything about the world, uh, even though they hired me as a social media native to connect them to this other world that they don't really have a space in yet. Yet then it's like the second you tell, you want to do something innovative or need a budget for something, they don't understand why you just haven't made them go viral or like, can't you just do what they're doing over here? And it's like, you can't, you can't just make something viral like this truly, um, non-brand person went viral for a makeup video like you're not going to be able to recreate that by just doing what she did that's already been done and brands are playing in the space by like doing this making educational content doing product knowledge but also like finding ways to be relatable as a person online and it's just like it was very hard to explain to people and then have to be basically told no for like, you know, you don't get a budget for that. You can do it for free from what I understand. Cause this, this girl went viral for free. And then also at your 90 day review, why don't we have the results we wanted? It's like, well, because I think maybe there's a disconnect between what you want and what you're in the process to get there. Like you just don't, and I was tw in my twenties, I get it. I wouldn't necessarily trust an employee in, in 26 to just like go wild and do whatever they want. But I didn't feel um, trusted. I felt like my my skill as a content creator was valued that I could shoot and edit and publish content, but they really wanted to feel safe from what they understood about what that content was. Um, and it just really sparked this desire in me to be able to do what I was doing for myself. And um, that led to me just, you know, I loved my job uh, at the time that I had when I started working in or on my YouTube channel, but I also didn't want to be working for these, um, what's the word, like pickle maybe, like brand owners who it's like, you know, they're just like, they see something cool, someone sends them a link and they're like, oh, tell your social media gay, he should do that. You know, like, <laughs> this is the cool new thing now. And it's like, 
okay, but we have this other thing that we're doing, like, and we're already in process on it. And also like, you can't just expect overnight results. Like it's gonna take, we have to keep doing this content consistently to get any results. And so I was like, I'm gonna go ahead and do that for myself with my own name on it, branding my own face, because if the time is gonna pass one way or the other, and I can either build equity into my brand or I can not. And like one of those is gonna like get me out of here one day. Um, and also I wanted to prove to myself like, yeah, like building an audience is just a matter of showing up consistently, being yourself and like the rest will come. And so, you know, it was like four years of doing YouTube videos for an audience of a couple hundred people um, for no money, but I had, you know, these are good paying jobs. I felt very privileged to be working in the field that I was, you know, going to TV sets and being on commercial shoots. And um, that was all glamorous enough for me to like, be like, okay, I made it. I'm in LA, I'm working in the biz, I'm touching beauty, which I liked. And then I have the, the resources to like make these videos by the, by the, Instagram products that I'm going to be reviewing and doing my trying Instagram product series and that got some success because of search engine optimization and so then I it led me to think about like okay but what's really getting the clicks is this influencer stuff and you know I reviewed the Taylor Swift uh album um like uh reputation and like seeing like a big difference in that and it's like the celebrity in the commentary space like that's really getting generating conversation. So it gave me that kind of stuff all encouraged me to keep like experimenting and finding my voice and building the series that eventually became Clip Breakdown. Um, so yeah, it was a, a mainly a desire to be self-employed. <laughs> and um, yeah, so there, so that whole process of like, just uh, enjoy, and learning to love the process, you know, it's just like, it could be six years of it could be seven years. It could be forever that I'm making these videos for no one to watch. So don't do it if I don't love it. You know. So don't do one. Don't do anything about topics you don't love. Don't bore yourself to death. Find ways to resource or works or outsource or work smarter, work good. And I think that'll, you know, made me a more resourceful employee for those brands anyway. So I was kind of like, okay, this fit. What I love most about your your content today and about your channel is that you always come off simultaneously hilarious while being technically accurate and savvy about how to make a film or or someone's content better or more easily translatable. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Because I like, like, I, like, like, I'll watch your stuff and I'll be like, oh, somebody else has these thoughts. I'm not alone in the world. Somebody else cares about this stuff as much as I do because in my general circles, nobody cares about, you know, transition shots and why do you have this music in the background and what is with this editing? No one ever cares. Is the video funny or not? Right? Right. How do you find that balance between being your hilarious reading roasting self while also injecting very informative tactics and things to actually help the creator at the same time first thank you that's so sweet i think for me it's like um 
recognizing that while I'm creating commentary about a piece of entertainment, the, I want the commentary to be its own entertainment, piece of entertainment. So, yes, I could show a clip and say, why is the um, color so washed out in this? But then I'm like, okay, but like, if I were roasting this with my friends, it would be, there would be hyperbole. Uh, so it's like, why, let's, it's like, well, let's, let's call it what it is. Like, this looks like we shot it in bath water. Uh, you know, it's like, what is like, how can we bring it to the place where it's like, I'm being familiar with the audience, saying it in a way that I would say it if I was like at a party and like on, you know, like, you know, and you, you can tell when you're like, vibing people and like people are laughing at what you say and you just say something wild and people laugh it's like allow that to come through in the uh in the initial reaction to the clips because that's when you know people are going to make the strongest connection and i think just having the confidence to go there when there is nobody in the room but a camera and just being like they'll either laugh or they won't <laughs> you know it's like not the end of the world and then extrapolating on that point with a little bit more about the, the actual technical reason behind it, you know? So it's like, yes, this was shot in some watered down milk tea, but uh, what I think I'm seeing here is like, they need to add more layers of depth, you know? We need to put some things closer to the camera and then something light, backlight to separate the subject. So it's like, then I can talk a little more like I would as a professor in a class, you know, as we're just like giving them the info and putting out specific examples. But I think that initial like instance of humor kind of really drives it home for people where it's like, oh yeah, compared to a shot that like looks great, this does look milky and murky and, and washed out and flat. And now I'll hopefully be able to witness that even in lesser degrees. Like, is my shot looking milky and flat? Uh, you know, is their makeup orange and keto? You know, it's like, we gotta, it just gives, it because it made someone laugh, or if I make myself laugh with uh, my own self critique, then I feel less like uh, intimidated by like really looking critically at my shots and being like, am I giving Cheeto right now? Is this, you know, is this boring? Is this flat? You know, would I make fun of this if I were to see it and then watch it three times and have something to say about it? Um, so yeah, I think that the main thing is just realizing like people want to be entertained uh, it sounds really i don't know web 2.0 to be like people want to be entertained while they learn but it's like no i mean people want to be entertained <laughs> some people don't actually care about the film shit, the part of it you know it's like they're not interested in being a filmmaker but they want to laugh and those people i want to be able to watch the content as well so it's like first and foremost let's try and like infuse our humor into it and I love comedy writing I love the the structure of jokes or you know there was this like thing in my comedy writing one of my comedy writing classes in college and it was like someone walks out onto the stoop and falls down the stairs is it funnier if there are five steps or three and it's like hmm what? like would it matter and then you're like technically yes if you did that in front of an audience more people will laugh at five steps or three steps which one is it which one do you think will make more people laugh and why and then you have to break it down and be like i mean five steps the rule of threes applies to comedy so it's like maybe three is just a funnier number but then five steps there could be like it's a more surreal number to see someone roll down and then jump up like what is the following action what is the context of it why 
would one work better than the other? And then you, you, you create a theory and you try to put it on camera and enhance that result. So it's like, oh, it's five to me because it's like, that's like a, you would think someone would really be hurt, but then if afterwards they like jump right back up and um, finish the conversation, like nothing happened. It's funnier the longer the distance. So then let's add like, uh, let's add a bike to the third step so that they're knocking something over and really uh, ex extending this whole falling down process, making it a louder, uh, more chaotic thing. And then they're trying to fix the bike when they get up at the end and you start having these ideas where you're like oh okay yeah now it's funny now i'm feeling more confident but that's gonna be funny because it's like looking like something more like the general person would laugh at it's impossible not to laugh at that type of thing so i'm trying to bring things to that point and um that's why i love comedy in general but and again getting the innate ability to kind of come up with that stuff on the fly like in just in everyday conversation and be considered a funny person is very validating. So like that's it's fun to get to build those habits. Um I guess I'm oh, sorry my Siri is listening to me now. Siri is listening to me. Um one of the best examples of your videos that 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 gets to that point is a video that I just watched of yours yesterday. It was about I think it was um horror movie bus or like the one where they're like on the bus and it's like a mockumentary and it's like this horror movie and this like it it literally looks like it's shot on a digital camera like yes. <laughs> <laughs> your commentary throughout that entire video was so hilarious because it was so accurate and things that i would have why is the top of everyone's head chopped off why is the light behind her literally brighter than the one in her face? Why <laughs> is the sky completely orange? I don't understand. Yes. It's so, so nice to see, thank you. It's so nice to see um, something that you're just like, there was no, the thought that I would put into just even this most casual film project, these people did not even get to that level. Like they were just like making it like a bunch of teenagers on the run which is like, great, that's gonna be very, there's plenty to talk about there, you know, cause I was a teenager who had made a lot of shitty horror movies in my life. And it's like, and I will rip those apart too when I when I review them on my channel. So it's like, um, and I feel like those areas, like those gaps when like, yeah, you, I was 16 and I put together a feature horror film, didn't put the right effort into anything else. Like it was enough for a 16 year old to manage a project like that, like getting actors, whatever, shooting it. So there was no bandwidth to make it artful, but that's why perspective is so valuable. It's like looking back, like don't even make it that long. First of all, because you cannot make each frame artful at 16 while you're managing a group of 20 extras single-handedly. But like, you know, the ambition is good because it, it gave me a lot of skills that I took with me, but to be able to look back at it and think like, oh yeah, okay. Um, you did not put any thought into this so let's really make it like my my film my first um kind of like film teacher who actually critiqued our work was his name is boris fruman a very accomplished director and he would give feedback in a way that felt sharp <laughs> but you would not forget it you know it was like he wasn't mincing words 
English was the second language, so already he wasn't like sugarcoating everything. But like, he would just be like, "Why would you do it that way? Like, when have you ever seen a movie that did that ever in your life?" And you're like, "Okay, you're like, I get it. Like, I have never seen something that careless on on screen, and now I'm I'm here trying to like impress you, this accomplished filmmaker, and I did something so kind of lazy, um, for lack of a better term, thoughtless, uninformed." Um, and so it's like, okay, if you can make a joke out of it, you can roast it. It becomes easier to A, hear, because we're laughing with you, like, and also B, hard to forget, easier to, to make actionable. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed that with the, I think it was called Paranormal, but it was something, some weird title, like very disconnected title, but. Yeah, yeah I was like, what? what uh, Okay, sure. Right. I just imagine myself like being on set for those movies and being like, I don't know what to say because they're just like, I don't want my name on this, you know? Because like, um, we've all been on shoots where you're like, this is going to be a train wreck when this comes out. I'm here. I want to get out of here. I'm home. I'm like, let me start making up my joke for how bad this is now because it's like, I need people to know that I'm aware. We need to be in on the joke right now. We understand it's supposed to be 90 degrees and they're all wearing like jackets and bubble coats. Yeah. We understand. I don't know why there's a dance break in the like a 10 minute dance break at the pool party, like, and why we can't just move on. So I'm gonna wink at the camera in the background so everyone knows that I know. Like, we worked extremely hard on this choreography. We didn't need to see it all. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other fun thing about entertainment is like everyone's on set and you might be like, I committed to this, so I'm here, but like, this is not gonna be good. <laughs> like, you have to be okay with like having some, yeah, you have to have, be okay with having some skeletons in your creative closet where you're like, I don't stand by that now. I wouldn't artistically recreate that in the same way. Probably wouldn't even get involved with the same people who did that, but here's what I took from it, you know, like. Um, bet your bet your director before you sign on or whatever. <laughs> For sure. Do you script your videos or are you just extemporaneously just firing off reads at these? <laughs> That's um a question I get a lot, and it's like this strange hybrid. For example, the intro I'm very committed to trying to get it a laugh in the first 10, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe minute. Sometimes I'm very, I can be, the intro's gonna be long, but I wanna feel very confident that I'm, I've got a hook and that people know like, oh, okay, I don't know what the fuck this movie is that he's talking about, but like, he's here to be funny about it. And um, the B-roll illustrates what he's talking about. Like, I, I'm, it's cohesive. So those I script, because um, I hate sitting down to shoot a video and being like, what am I gonna say that makes this good that won't have people click away in the first 10 seconds? Um, so putting thought ahead of time and it really helps me feel confident there. A lot of the, the punchlines or the, the more immediately after the clip jokes, I'll script just because I'm watching through and making marker, putting markers on the video where, where I have something to say because that's where I have to go and edit a clip and make sure that it's short enough that it won't get copyrighted. And I'll be like, so here I'm trying to say like uh, this, you know, her makeup looks like it was um, it consists of like mac and cheese powder or whatever. It's like 
okay, well, what are you gonna say? What are you gonna say? Like something suddenly mac and cheese powder, yeah, but like, what are we gonna say? Because what you just said wasn't that, wasn't it. It wasn't, <laughs> it's getting there, but it wasn't as funny as it could be. Or a lot of times it's like, I wanna say this, but I don't wanna use the word, you know, I want the word mac and cheese to be the funniest part. That's where people are supposed to laugh. So I'm not gonna say why is mac and cheese powder what they use for their makeup. It's like, that's missing, messing up the order so it's not as funny. Um, I was like, oh, she's wearing my favorite uh, brand of bronzer, Kraft macaroni and cheese dust. You know, it's like, that's at least ending on the, the button, you know, it's like ending on the funny, unexpected subversion of expectation um, work. So putting that down, writing that down in the, my notes real quick is like my easiest way of being like, I don't have to redouble my efforts when I'm shooting and think of like, wait, what, what's the bony way of saying it? Like mac and cheese? What, I don't want to be wasting time re-editing just word order, so it's yeah. very helpful when I'm like I, to capture that you know initial reaction in its purest form, in that it's like the funniest way that I thought of saying it, where it's like okay that made me laugh in my head. Let me write that down so I can say it just like that. And then when it comes time to shoot, really just like not over rehearsing so that you're like can preserve that illusion of uh, spontaneity when I'm reading it, where it's like, okay, I thought of it once. Now I'm gonna read it back real quick. Don't overthink it. It was funny in my head when I thought of it. Allow it to be that. And then everything in between those clips is all just kind of me talking um, and just not being afraid to say the thing. I'm like, if I say something horrible, I will cut it out before I post it. But not the time to censor yourself when it's not a live stream, you know? Fair enough. That makes perfect sense. When is your stand-up tour? <laughs> Good question. I would. I depends on when a wealthy producer decides to finance it. <laughs> I would love to do like a tour of any kind. I think I love traveling. I love stand-up. Um, okay. So that's something I'm definitely interested in pursuing. But you know, I'm in the, definitely in the YouTube grind these days, where it's like, let me just get these videos out, and that's the tour. <laughs> you know. But like to do a live show or a live show format of clip breakdown would be so fun. So that's something I'm always like not counting out as a possibility. I mean, people do that kind of thing and I think I can do it, but um, just kind of have it on the back burner of my mind. Uh, just be like, would that be a cool thing to translate live or mm. at the beginning of my whole YouTube career, like when people started watching, I was very self-conscious, like, I want people to know that I'm funny in person, too. It's not just, like, only online that I can be funny. And I'm like, whatever. <laughs> They'll know it if they need me, but, like, <laughs> I am funny in both. I don't, I think I'm funny. I, don't, I honestly, it's fine. As long as they're watching the videos, frankly, the cash flow is, is like, there for me. So, like, they can, like, sorry. Stay for the 10 seconds so I can get the ad rates, it's fine. <laughs> exactly, yeah, like, let me not try, let me not make my wish list too long here. Like, uh, they can, because I remember I got a few comments where they're like, people think he's so funny, but it's scripted. And I was like, some parts are and some parts aren't. And when I watch it back, I cannot remember which parts are scripted or which were not, because it's like the process is so fast. So I was like feeling defensive about that for a minute. like. Yeah, but I'm funny in real life. It's like, shut up. If you're funny on camera, you're funny in real life. They're fine. You're, they don't need to know. They, they're either going to laugh or not. It's fine. Uh, what can I do? I'm not here to control everyone's uh, experience of my of my work. So it's like, 
as long as people are laughing enough <laughs> to to make the AdSense like viable, then it's like I whatever. But a tour like that would be a fun way to stretch my legs in crowd work, in truly uh, you know improvised type of, of work, which is now like that like I said like a hybrid. Then on top of that, they for the people who say that. You know stand-up comedians write their jokes, right? And that's the illusion of spontaneity that stand-up comedians, the best, I think, are so good at, where it's like, oh, yeah, I give a punchline, and then, but anyway, I don't, can't, you know, like, they're they're timing themselves to, to throw in these verbal crutches that we all use, like, but I don't know, because oh, uh, you're giving them time to laugh, and you're continuing your sentence past the punchline so that it sounds like you just are talking naturally, but you know they wrote that down. You know they are, are workshopping material, and you know as soon as you watch a stand-up comedian do a show in two different venues, and you're like, oh, he said that the last time. And suddenly yeah. it's not as funny, because you're like, it doesn't surprise me. It's like, I already saw it. And that's when I was like, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, shut up, people. Everyone does it. <laughs> Everybody does it. Because comedy is no. an art, and you gotta be, you, the more there is value in being exacting with it, like anything else. Right, there has to be some level of skill and like execution to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I discovered you through your Shane Dawson contents, and watching your videos raised raised a conversation for me because I, I I did a podcast before this one, and one of the episodes I did was about redemption culture. And at the time, this was before all of the old stuff came out about Shane Dawson, all of the Willow Smith content, all of the cat content, all of the all of the things of the things, right? All of that hadn't dropped yet, or I hadn't been made aware, made aware of it yet. And I raised the conversation with Shane Dawson as like the subject point of like, where does the conversation of redemption culture come into place? Watching your videos re-raised that question for me because in watching you break down his videos, it's like you're recognizing one, how shitty the content is, but also how egregiously unaware he actually is of himself and his and his perception when it comes to, to the zeitgeist. I love that you're just going, oh, my God, that's so cute. <laughs> Where, like, what do you think Shane Dawson needs to be doing to actually come back into public um, acceptance in a way that's real? Yes, I love this question. And it's something I think about a lot. It's like, it thing is like, I'm not, um, Shane Dawson is not like a, stranger to me in terms of the way he acts like I relate to him in a certain way because he reminds me of me when I was most um closed off to feedback like the areas of my life my work in school or in my career where it was like no what I presented to you was perfect and a finished thing so the fact that you're offering feedback right now is very dysregulating you know it's like and therefore I'm gonna not only not listen to it not take it in but my work will suffer because of it. You know, it's like, I will give you a worse piece and I will cross my arms and tell you that's what it is. Because that's all I see Shane doing now. Like, I think I'm, I'm really happy to have moved past that. 
Um, but that took a lot of workshopping of screenplays and, and giving feedback to other people and realizing like everybody's work can be improved if they're open to feedback. And part of that means, you know, when we go outside of just work or creative work or final products or whatever to our behavior, you know? And I think a lot of um, realizing like um, that there's a need for anti-racism and um, and that people of all social groups or minority groups experience microaggressions and realizing in myself like, oh, I've experienced microaggressions, sure, but like not in these areas of my life that people of color do or women do or trans people. It's like their set of fears and their set of things that they're, rooms that they're afraid to enter or that they're like expecting some sort of discrimination are completely different than mine. Um, it's like, okay, so then I can be accountable to like how I, how welcoming I am in those spaces or like, oh, at least aware of my privilege or my my ability to to do things that others may not and, and try to either acknowledge them or correct those imbalances or just not perpetuate them or help to, to give a, a voice to people who don't have a voice in that situation or, or hand the platform over. It's like all of that felt like, oh, fuck, okay, yeah, just like, be humble enough to say, yeah, that was a fuck up and like, wouldn't do it that way again. Hope I don't come off that way. Let me know if I do, we'll talk about it. And so that all comes from the same place for me, like whether it's like taking feedback on how your work can be improved or how what you did made someone feel harmed or cause harm. And Shane, I just see none of this, none of this ability to accept creative feedback to feel that his work could be improved. And when I watched The Chair, which was the reality show where he was making a movie, that's when I first was like, okay, I'm sorry. This is going on, like, I'm. this is the clip breakdown because it's like so obstinate to, to clearly good advice from much more successful people. But nope, we just gotta dig our heels in and it's like, this is what you get. And in the influencer world, I think with Colleen Ballinger too, it's like, you have so many, of the people who write the checks being like, well, you're the one with the audience. So if you say this is what the kids want, there it goes. And then it goes out and it doesn't age well. Um, when, if the creator had enough maturity at the time to say, you know what, you're right. Let me, you know, I do this on my YouTube channel, but this person makes award-winning movies or they have a career in this. I'm gonna go ahead and tone things down or pull things back or think about how this is going to affect people. Um, and then they probably would have been better, but it's same with Shane and like his, um, every gross thing he's ever done, you know, like you don't get apologies and accountability. You get, I didn't fuck my fucking cat. You know, it's like, girl, don't yell that. Like, first of all, like that sounds worse. You're just giving more sound bites and you sound mad. You sound defensive. You're making us feel like we should feel stupid for taking it seriously when it's like, okay, whether I thought you actually did those things or not, whether I thought your inappropriate joke about Willow Smith was motivated from a place of true, still, um, you know, being some sort of deviant or not, which many, you, you know, it's arguable either way. Some people just are making shocking jokes because they know it's going to get the reaction. Some people really have nefarious thoughts behind it. I cannot say, I don't read your mind, but like, I know it made me feel uncomfortable. I know that it caused harm and it normalized a culture that is really dangerous and does create actual victims. So that's who I want you to apologize for. <laughs> you know, like that's who I want 
you to, to take accountability for and show some sense of understanding that like your words actually, especially being on such a large platform, had have, have had a part in creating a toxic culture or, or perpetuating a, a broken system. But if you're just gonna yell at me for even asking for an apology and acting all indignant that people don't get your humor, like, well, you know, someone's got to get your humor. Like, if people don't get your humor, then it's not funny. <laughs> like, babe, it's all about the public's audience, like, or the public perception of what you just said. If we don't like it, then you can either take the note and, and do better work, or you can be making stupid jokes for you and the and the smaller portion of people who think exactly like you, or who are willing to think like you or make excuses for you because you've been in their lives since they were eight and you helped them through a traumatic period when they felt alone and they didn't like their appearance or they felt like outcasts so they're trauma bonded to you because you got them through a difficult time but that's like an echo chamber they're just gonna like anything you do so that to me is not somebody who wants to reach mainstream success or reach really impactful levels of um, awareness. It's like you're always gonna just be stuck in your bubble of people who are willing to give you credit, think you're funny no matter what. Um, so Shane needs to take accountability for everything. You know, he needs to like show in a mature way. He's aware of what he did. Uh, I would go down the list. I would just open up a Reddit thread of everything problematic I've done and, and address it and be like, oh my God, this one really makes me cringe. Like if there's one video I could like erase from the internet forever, it would be this, but this is where I was thinking. I saw that he helped point to other movies. It'd be like scary movie did it. And it's like, those are, those, it's not racist when the Wayans brothers do it, you know? And it's like, but if you get on camera and explain like as a 19 year old with way too much money and way too much attention, I thought that since the Wayans brothers did it, I could do it too and it's not okay and it means something different when a white person is doing this or normalizing this type of performance versus when a black person is and i'm embarrassed <laughs> you know like those are the types of words that let people know like okay you're taking it on but when he just says oh you know because like they're i love scary movie at the time and those were my favorite movies so i just wanted to do that it's like right right yeah that's a problem you know like come on Go take it to the next step and understand that it was a problem. You know, that's why. I appreciate you, Billy, being really perceptive of that because I am somebody who has done a lot of advocacy, specifically commenting on pop culture spaces. And so, you know, a lot of my content has been based on bringing awareness to the social to the social issues within pop culture things because that's what people relate to most. And, but one thing I've always had to say was as much as I'm naturally gonna speak about these things because they're a part of my own experiences, the issue is, is the people affected by certain things can only be their own advocates for so long. Right. It Generally, you only see people take situations like that seriously when it's somebody who's not directly affected by it bringing attention to it They're like didn't y'all see that then somebody who relates to them is like 
well, yeah, that is kind of messed up, but I didn't, you know, I, right. I didn't feel it was weak on it, da, 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 da. And it made me feel very seen watching your content because it wasn't something that you had to stop the funny and was like, now we're gonna get serious. Here's the very serious part of the song. Do you hear that? Like, it wasn't that, it was like, um, yeah, this content is shitty and you're also not aware. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I wonder how much of that, because it feels like content creators like that want not only a team of yes men around them telling them that their content is great, but they also want the audience to assimilate into that thinking and being like, yes, and everything that you do is great because you're being yourself. Yeah. And it's like this heightened level of sensitivity where it's like, for some reason, people take critiques harder be when they're being themselves, quote unquote, versus when they're doing something scripted or, you know, things like that. When it's like, I get it. It may hit a little different because it's yourself, but you may want to take those critiques more seriously because you are being yourself versus this is just a character that I play. Right, which is often the place people go. It's like you you did something problematic in this character that you wrote. Like you you that's you. You know, it's like um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, um, that, that, but that's really it. It's like. You know, nowadays people can't play stuff off on characters they play because they're writing the characters. Yes. You know, and I think it comes down to, for me, it's like, I'm like, I've been, I go to therapy since forever. Like I'm, I've become this like very much like have the hard conversation, you know, communicating is not supposed to be comfortable always. And I have to like internalize that with myself where it's like, yeah, it would be easier if someone else wrote this problematic thing. And um, then I have it like, I can put it at arm's length when someone gives me feedback that like, that's harmful, that's not, that's problematic. I don't have that. If I want the, the reward of having, being the creator of all of this, then I also have to have the responsibility of um, accepting when something that wasn't up to snuff gets passed. Uh, and also like limiting my personal involvement with it you know like if someone points out that i use an expression that is based on something problematic or racist or perpetuates a certain stereotype i'm like oh god oh god yeah now i see it like that's so this country you know it's like this language it's so it's all based on colonialism it's it's fascinating and horrifying the fact that these are all tiny little things that play into the um, unequal experience that we all have and then I go okay well like Jesus instead of getting all mad about it I did say that I'm very sorry for like God and I sh should have known I could have known that um, why do we just talk about and say the expressions without knowing where they come from like the power of the word is so important and then I'm like I look at I look at it with fascination and and also a certain level of empathy because it's like all I know is my experience, like I've gone into rooms where all of a sudden I feel unsafe, I feel unwelcome, you know, it's like because there's these this heteronormative oppression that's just like oozing into the nature of it, even just as a kid, boys over here, girls over there, and being forced to associate with only boys and, and never feeling safe over there, it's like, that's really hard, that was fucking hard as a kid, and so imagine that, but 
based on your skin color or your cultural group or whatever. That would be even more common. That would be even more aggressive and more uh, toxic when it's like coming from your adult boss and you're an adult and they still are doing this kindergarten-y separation. Oh, <laughs> I just spilled coke all over myself. Um, but the, so like being able to like empathize and relate the concept of inequality and oppression with the inequality and oppression that I've experienced and realizing that it's different amounts. I still have white privilege. I still have had male privilege um, my whole life. And so it's not enough to be like, yeah, well, I experience inequality too. It's like, yeah, of course, everybody does. Everyone has moments where they feel they are not treated equally. It does not come up when I go to a job interview. It does not come up when I'm, uh, you know, approached by a police officer. Like, imagine if it did come up then. Like, your life would be, that would be more work. That situation would be more work. And so I think it's just like, if we can just put ourselves in those situations and relate it to like the inexperiences or the negative experiences we've had in the world. And instead of being like, well, so I've experienced something bad too. So that's, so I'm, so it's not a problem. It's like, it is a problem because it's like, we're not talking about you in that one interaction you had with someone who hated redhead, you know, and I'm talking about the entire world, the entire system the entire history of this country from when your ancestors were brought over to like now being pervaded by this like this attitude to the point where people don't even realize they're doing it like do we see the difference like it's it's a different thing so yeah for Shane it's like he doesn't do that he doesn't give me that I don't get that I don't get that he even and even to the point of him being like homophobic as a bisexual person you know and it's like him committing by erasure against himself you know it's like i i just wish it wasn't accepted by so many people as like funny on its face when it's not first of all it's not funny from a comedy perspective the jokes don't have the right structure it's not a good punchline. he's not saying the right words and it's also not funny just to say something controversial and then and then hope that that's enough like it's so lazy and then and the only thing worse than it being lazy is it being like based in this ableism this cishet normalization this white privilege uh upper middle class american who wants to um, act like they came from poverty or struggling to find a hardship in their past type shit it's like or you could be honest with yourself and us <laughs> like you you had the life you had it wasn't easy always it wasn't you know it wasn't always as hard as as the next person's you know like let's pull it together and then he wouldn't come off like oh i'm oh rich people scare me i'm so scared of all the rich people. it's like bitch you're wearing balenciaga sneakers like you are rich well, wearing a balenciaga sweatshirt like yeah calm, calm down mary only person i've seen uh, make designer clothes look so schleppy every like no matter how it's like so so don't talk to me about like it's, the problem is not money for you. It's like you accepting Shane, accepting who he is, and it's like so you're only gonna be related to his. I feel I feel strong. His core fan base is just other people who refuse to accept that they have had privileges that others do not. You know, it's white girls who don't want to admit that there's still racism. It's it's uh, all sorts of 
archetypes of people who don't realize that they're they're part of the problem, you know? And it's like, fine, if that's who your base is, great. I don't expect you to really, it's not getting on Disney Channel anytime soon. You're not getting a, you're not getting a, you're not getting on mainstream television. You're not getting a direct a mainstream movie. Like this is just, these are things that I don't see in the cards for you if you're not going to be self-aware enough to admit when you need help. Right. Speaking of self-awareness, that brings me to another one of my favorite videos of yours. The one about real friends of WeHo. And I had a really complex time with the real friends of WeHo because there was a lot that I didn't understand, not even about the show, but just about all of the conversation around it. Um, there was a couple questions that I had. One, do you think that do you think that the gays who end up hating the show, because it seemed like a show that was meant for gays ended up being hated by the gays. Let's just yeah. call it a thing. Do you think that that specifically had to do with the backdoor drag race targeting? Is it the show itself? Do you think it's both? Is it a hybrid? Or do you think it has something to do with the actual content of why that show, which by all intents and purposes should have been great. It should have been great for us, but it just went all the way left, like with no, no yellow light. It was straight green light to hell from day one. Yes. I think it was like a perfect storm situation. You know, it's like, first of all, the most recognizable person on it being Todrick Hall, who is controversial. He's the internet favorite villain sometimes, you know, doesn't pay the underdog, doesn't accept that that's was ever true, um, is often just like handling controversy in a way that makes people question him even more. The the putting on airs of about living outside one's means and then like, you know, the rented mansion that he claimed to have owned and and positioning that like as I'm just so proud of myself as a black artist, a black queer person. It's like yes, you should be, but you don't have to. You don't have to uh, embellish the results of that. You know, it's like just the fact that we're that you're visibly queer is enough. We don't. You don't need to have a, a Beyonce type house to make that even more powerful. So that was one thing. Like Todrick already is going to get scrutiny. Um, for being on the show and then for him to acknowledge on the show that this is a this is part of him trying to get be seen in a different light it's like well now no one's gonna want like now we know your motive and then the toxic fandom of drag race is also going to play into it you know don't shorten their drag race by half hour because that's going to give them all of this fodder about how rushed the new episodes seem and instead of it just being a really bewildering confusion on the uh, decision on the point part of MTV, it's like, we can blame Todrick and the real gays of WeHo or real friends of WeHo. You know, it's like too easily attributed from one to the other. So if people don't love the content, if we don't love this new show as much as we love to drag race, you better fucking not shorten drag race to give us that show. You know, like that was the entitlement of the drag race audience was already very titled and then there's like the aspect of um todrick and several other people's reaction to the reaction where it's like that age-old thing of like oh it's interesting how we all want representation and then when we get it we don't celebrate it and watch it and it's like 
we of course yes it's good that there are black queer people queer people in general a show based around the queer experience on television on mainstream television on mtv but if people don't respond well to the content it's not like they got out there it's not like we're here on hbo where it's like we see these touching stories of people going out into the community and changing minds and changing lives and inspiring us with stories of relatability it's more of this outdated real housewives reality show it's like my fabulous life my um celebrity husband but it's done on such a small scale that it's like it feels forced and it feels fake even just watching you at your garden party so it's not what i want to see and even if it was what i want to see it's not to the opulent scale of uh other shows that have done it successfully um it feels forced so that was like another easily easily criticized i think aspect of it and just the general i think um we started to feel at this time like okay drag race went from logo to vh1 to mtv like we are we are the mainstream now drag race and you know people equate drag race with so much queer culture it's now the mainstream and so naturally when that starts to happen i think the queer community is going to start respecting it less you know we didn't we didn't come here to be the nuclear family we don't do um we don't represent kink communities at pride parades to be family friendly to be you know this one that all the sponsors want to advertise on so as soon as it starts becoming that and therefore you know it's like oh me and you know straight women and their boyfriends watching it loving it that's all great i think it's good for uh, the straight cishet perception of the queer community um just have people deserve to be able to sit and watch and enjoy queer experiences on television without feeling like that makes them gay or you know whatever like it's like we're just doing what we're doing but it's going to make it a little less it's like when you know a gay bar starts getting being the bachelorette party place suddenly it's a little less yeah it's a little less of a queer safe space and a little more of a a a, a space that has reached the type of general acceptance that allows for both queer people and straight people to coexist and it's like that's great we need to coexist on the planet but then there also need to be places that are are, are dedicated to queer queer safe spaces um because straight people just like white people do with every other culture we appropriate to make it cool and digestible it, the same thing happens i think just with any any social group that has more leverage over than another but maybe doesn't always realize the privilege it's like they will take and borrow the cool subverted subversion uh subculture thing and make it inevitably <laughs> like a halloween costume and like it so like moving to mtv really i think made it very obvious for a lot of previously devoted drag race fans that like oh yeah we've reached that point where it's like you know this is the safest gay bar on uh on in the east village it's like chelsea becoming gentrified and no longer like a gay neighborhood um and just a rich white neighborhood and it's like okay you can't stop gentrification apparently but the subculture will move <laughs> to somewhere else and right that's not going to happen in the province town it's like why are you here exactly 
And like, if you're gonna be here, like, then we're gonna move the next town over. So now it's like Cathedral City is next to Palm Springs. Like, that's where all the gays are, you know? And it's like, if you're gonna do real dirty gay shit, it's gonna be out there, as opposed to the main um, drag here, the main street here where gay bars do exist. But people were telling me last night, they're like telling me about the bars that used to be open there and the after hours parties. And it's like, now it's like a Lululemon there, you know? It's like very different. And that's life, America, the face, the changing face of it. But no one's gonna move to the new gay area without citing the reasons why the previous one is no longer as fun or authentic or pure or viable. And so when Real Friends of WeHo opens up and it's like the Lululemon of gay TV, because it's not breaking any new ground. It's not, telling the stories of queer people who we haven't heard before. There's no trans representation. There's no, um, nothing that we haven't seen, you know? So it's like, it's good for representation. It's good that this got passed, greenlit, put on MTV. But it's also okay that nobody wanted to watch it. And some shows, maybe it's like if, it, if the same exact show came out, but it didn't encroach on Drag Race's runtime, and it didn't happen right as, you know, the MTVification of Drag Race took place, it probably would have been embraced and celebrated and, uh, you know, had a second season. But it came out when it came out and people reacted the way they did. So it's like, I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's like the same show could have succeeded at a different time, but. And you know what's crazy? It gives me a thought because this show has happened before, right? Mm. And you mentioned how Drag Race went from Logo to VH1 to MTV. Well, I remember in a video, it might have been your video, talking about Real Friends of WeHo, that somebody thought that this that, that when they got casted on this show, they were told that the show was going to be called The A-List and that it was going to be the second and the third. Well, mind you, that show has happened Yes. It was a franchise. <laughs> like, the A-list was on Logo. Yep. And it happened. And there were two seasons of, of Los Angeles, one season of New York. Like, that show happened. So it makes me wonder, were they trying to, like, reboot this show and carry it off of the back of Drag Race because it started on Logo, where Drag Race started, and they thought it would be a good carry builder? Like, what, what happened? But then it was like, okay, so... Nobody knows what the A-list is because nobody knows what Logo is. So maybe we can piggyback it off of the Real Housewives. But since it's queer, we'll ride the coattails of Drag Race. And it all just kind of shut down in their faces. Yeah. And I do remember talking about this um, in my video. The person I know who worked on the set said that one of the cast members was under the impression that it was going to be a more... Um, social progress focused show like we are like we're here on hbo where it's like we're really breaking down barriers we're having uncomfortable conversations we're changing minds and then turns out it's more just like a traditional what they would call caddy reality show like real housewives and the a-list i remember talking about it because i actually in new york i remember i like finagled my way into a meeting with the producers to be cast on that because I portrayed myself to have a much more glamorous life. I did have a much older boyfriend and that's what they were looking for. And he was a music producer, but he was not willing to appear on the show. So 
it was just a conversation of them being like, well, what kind of fancy things do you do? And I was like, I don't know. And go to dinners and they're like, you have pictures? You have, like, what can we shoot? And I was like, um, I have to go, let me talk to my husband. I have to go figure this out. And then it just died there. And so then when that show came out, I realized like, oh yeah. And you know, they were saying in the meeting, they were like, so this is Evolution Studios where we make the Real Housewives. You've seen the Real Housewives, right? And I was like, yeah. They're like, so it's like, Big fancy events, champagne fountains, uh, that cat bites at the Ivy, you know, it's like, and I was like, uh-huh, yeah, that's my life. It's like, no, it's not, first of all, and you can't create those environments. Um, so then when I saw the real Friends of WeHo come out, I'm like, they're borrowing the same exact title structure. I don't know that it was Evolution Studios, but it's, it's, it's you know, it's all VH1 logo MTV Viacom same same think tank and yeah so i was like yeah the a-list came out and it was successful yeah they had multiple seasons and i loved it i was like everything i needed at the time um but i was too young to access those types of situations or experience those things so it felt very aspirational i think that's not as aspirational anymore those situations those environments but the the idea was yeah like we'll do that again but now Drag Race is on MTV, even more people watch it. So yeah, we can play it after Drag Race. We'll have the Drag Race audience built in. Straight people think it's cool to be gay now, so they'll watch it too. And we're creating, and, and Todrick is, uh, everything he does gets a fucking 1200 YouTube videos and a, and, and a Distractify article written about him. So like, we're we're part of the, the zeitgeist. And then it's just like, we missed the boat a little bit because it's like, Maybe a show like We're Here would have done well after Drag Race. Um, something that's powerful and, you know, it's like, yeah, we got the straight boyfriend and girlfriend to watch Drag Race and now we hit them with the, like, we're gonna make you cry, like, even more. Like, you want an Emmy, let's give them the, the stuff that actually makes a difference and that queer people can respect for the work it's doing as well. And I just don't think after an hour or whatever of Drag Race, people were in the mood to watch another half hour of this very hollow and formulaic reality show that just happens to feature like a cast yeah that makes perfect sense what's been your favorite clip to break down hmm. i think it's gotta be like um not one particular movie but the type of movie which is like what you described with the paranormal bus ride one where it's just like we are in the age of streaming. There is Tubi, there is Shutter, there is uh, the the um, Roku channel. Like there are just like, everybody's doing original content. It is so much content and you need to saturate your audience with it if you even want a chance at making it as a, as a media company. So that means a lot of really bad stuff slips through, you know, and like fast, it's made fast, cheap, and put out without advertising. And it's like, that makes the kind of movie like those those cheap horror movies. And um, it's great. There's tons of things to make jokes about because it's hilariously underproduced. There's also lots of teachable moments because it's low budget filmmaking done wrong when I think there is a right way to do it. And you could use the same budget to, uh, to employ a story that's very powerful. Um, and then it's, un it's niche. I've never heard of that, but it looks like it's like a low budget version of a Marvel movie. Like, so it's like, you can relate it to, to the knockoff version of this or that, which gets you 
search engine uh, credibility and it, it piques interest. So those are the types of things that I'm like, I'm having fun. It's not so much to say. It's so bad. And then it's also intriguing to, to, to someone who hasn't seen it and doesn't want to see it also. Absolutely. Have you ever been suggested something to break down that you just didn't see any content in? That was just like, oh, this was some something that somebody wanted me to break down, but I just, I'm not seeing it. Where, where, where's the content? It happens surprisingly often. And it's either like something that's like prestige and I truly love it. Like break down um, your favorite movie, whatever happened to Baby Jane. And I'm like, it's hard. Like, I just like, my whole face lit up when I was telling you about that wheelchair scene. And I'm like, what would I do to make fun of it? Other than I can do it and I've done it. Or someone suggests something and I'm like, I think this is really good. Um, I can still find a way to make jokes, but it's hard to do while still being clear that it's like, this is out of, I revere the thing that's on the screen. Um, And the joke has to inevitably come from me being like, unable to ever think of anything so good or like um how what my reaction in that situation would pale in comparison it's it requires a lot a little more digging to find where for me the humor is there and then there are some things where i'm just like i start watching it and i'm just like i'm not clicking with it you know it's like i'm not liking this it's giving me a vibe of like i wouldn't even want to watch this to like hate watch it and I've tried to suffer through those clip breakdowns before, and it's just like, if I don't want to, if I really just don't like it, it's going to give me the ick. The whole process, you know, writing it, shooting it, it feels way too laborious. And it's like, already, it's hard enough work without it feeling like this is a science film that like, or this is like homework, you know, it's like, um, I'm trying to think of an example of that. Probably like, oh, like an episode of Hannah Montana, or I'm like, this is, you know, this is nothing. It's not dribble. It's easy to make fun of ish if I really like want to, but like I'm just like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do this one. I'm sorry. I know people wanted me to do it, but I don't want to do it. And then I'll come back to it a month later and be like, ah, now I'm in the mood for it. So it's it's interesting. I have to give myself the grace to know like it's a creative thing. I'm not going to be in the same creative headspace every time I sit down to do something. And sometimes it's just not the, not the right time. That makes perfect sense. There are a couple classic movies that I would love a breakdown from you on. And I I don't know if somebody has suggested it at all, but I would love to see you break down Mommy Dearest. I would love to see you break down Showgirls. I would love to see you break down from Justin to Kelly. Those are all very good ones, (laughs) first of all. Those ones are not on the on the list of no's at all. First of all, obsessed with Showgirls. I did do a live, uh, once a month on my Patreon, I do um, a live watch party. So I'm like picture in picture with the movie and interacting with the chat while we watch it. Showgirls was so much fun and it would be great for a, a quick breakdown. Um, Justin to Kelly, I've never seen, but I know that will be good. I know that will, because I've seen enough clips to know. <laughs> so that's a good reminder to do that one. I'm obsessed with terrible movies because I always end up liking the movies that like people hate like Catwoman for example I live for Catwoman I live I do too the skincare based like a villain I was like this is everything <laughs> like where can I buy Beulene honey tell me where can I buy 
Give me the website. <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> but like, I just, like, I can just see you breaking down that scene in Showgirls when they're doing the dance. And like, like, like the part with the ice or the ice. Different places is my favorite. (laughs) There's so much good stuff there. There, it's such a good. And then the dolphin sex, like I can't with the. I I wish that's what real sex looked like. That'd be hilarious. I, I am dying to have sex again, just so I can do that. You're exactly <laughs> just see <laughs> <laughs> the next time I promise you, I am going to in a D. You're wheeling out the kitty pool, and then Mommy Dearest is iconic because I'm. I mean, I love to. You know, we need. They need to teach gay history and queer cinema in schools. So until then. It's like there's so much to talk about that uh, the, the next generation of queer people might not get anywhere else or like in, uh, if, I, if I can be the first one to talk about some of these iconic moments in pop culture history, great. But it also relates to my favorite movie. So it's like, it's gotta be on the, and it's a TV movie. It's, a sh- it's kind of a schlocky TV movie, which I love. We'll have. Yes, and the fact that they positioned that movie as this Oscar-winning Faye Dunaway vehicle, like, the, like the the biggest mother of them all, like yo. Yeah, the way Gen X talked about that movie versus the movie that it was when I saw it, I was like, I was like, there are some generational differences because this is a comedy, but also there's a lot there because it's like, it's based on this memoir that has been contested like the stories of the abuse or whatever so it's like it brings all these conversations that i love about like the essential truth of someone who writes a memoir that need to be accurate or can it just be the truth emotionally as they saw it it's like a, a memoir not a biography it's a hybrid of truth and fiction so i love that kind of conversation so it's, it's three for three those suggestions you just made <laughs> were like all must do's. I would probably put them for November and beyond because it's like we're in spooky season now, you know? I will cry. I will cry. (laughs) I love it. They'll be there. It's so funny because Christina Crawford was actually the first person hired to write the script for the movie and they didn't like it. Really? It's so funny. (laughs) They based the movie off of her book. They're like, they didn't like it. Boring. Like, it's too real, too real, too real. So funny. You're like, this is actually kind of sad. <laughs> She's like, yeah. <laughs> if you read the book, I'm obsessed with the book. The, the book is so much better than the movie. If they would have included everything that happened in the book, it would have just been sad. I have to see it. I have to read the book. It sounds, yeah, it would make sense. Like, it should be sad. But they wanted a little bit of ratings, buzz, and camp. So that's what they got. Yeah, because it's like, I can't think of Mommy Dearest and not think of it as a comedy, even though it was so not intended to be that. Right. Like, no, they, they meant for it to be funny, right? <laughs> Magic. But then it's like, even now, like things come out on TV that it's like, that had to be meant to be funny. But then you're like, oh, if I think about the creative process of filmmaking, it's like, actors can be very self-serious and directors too. So it's like, you can really do 12 rehearsals or something 
and then put it on camera and it's like once the lighting and the music and the angles are there it's like you would you would swear up and down that that was an intentional comedy when it's like nope they were being completely earnest so it's like fascinating that when that happened absolutely that scene between um her and the uh lawyer i'm not acting girl yes. oh my god like, yes you are sweetie like it couldn't be more ironic <laughs> I may as well have property of MGM tattooed on my backside. Where is this? <laughs> yeah, like. And the thing is, like, that might be how, like, the kind of thing that would actually come out of Joan Crawford's mouth. But it's like, you would have to see it in person to believe it, like in an interview, because she really was just that theatrical and that extra. So to see someone else do it feels like an SNL sketch. Exactly. Have you had any publications reach out to you to actually do like film critic work? Like, have you actually been reached out to critique something in real life? Um, yeah, in certain varying levels of importance, I suppose. Like um, sometimes, especially during COVID, I would get codes, like instead of doing screenings in LA, they would do like a code to see a digital screening of like um, the new, Apple TV show or whatever. And the hope was that you would review it. Um, I could tell. Or like they would send me a press kit or a short film that somebody did. And be like, we would love if you could do a clip breakdown on it. And it would just be like, I mean, you've seen clip breakdown, right? Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be nice necessarily. It's not, it's not meant to like show every like, tell people to go see it sometimes it's more of a like i watched this so you don't have to type of thing um so beyond that i mean i've gotten people reaching out for comment on certain topics especially like Jane Dawson stuff or gabby hannah type of things more influencer based um and less so from actual media entities themselves being like we gotta have your opinion on this type of thing um, but that being said, I mean, like, I love, I love search engine optimization. I'm like, if it's going to have my name on an article, like, I will do it. A lot of articles that are like, here's a questionnaire that we need you to fill out. And we're just going to, like, print that as though it was the interview. And it's like, okay, I mean, like, I'm basically writing it myself, but <laughs> I'll still do it. Yeah. So, uh, I love that kind of thing. I like whenever there's any sort of interest in what I have to say outside of my videos or people think that, like, these videos give me some sort of um authority to, to weigh in on topics where i'm like oh shit um i love that because it's like that's kind of you know what the whole goal was to be seen as someone who is pop culture literate and and has an opinion or a hot take to share so um but nothing nothing uh super um what i would think of as like oh the the post wants to know what i have to say about this or that or like or uh, Hulu uh, invited me to, you know, review, give feedback on their thing. You know, it's nothing super, studios are gonna do what they're gonna do, you know? And that's like, they're not, I don't think they're looking to me to be like, he knows what the kids want. And they're just like, gonna make fun of whatever it is anyway, so. Which is fine, because you know, like I said, once you're mainstream, the gays move out. <laughs> and I need, I can't have that. <laughs> so. Yeah. I don't you're, like, 
Yeah, exactly. I, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So I'm just trying to, you know, I'm okay with getting copyright claims uh, from Lionsgate every two days. That's fine. Speaking of, have we solved that issue with the Brazilian um, music company that keeps coming after you in every video? Like, like, have we solved that issue? Who do I need to write an email to? You know, it's, I don't know what happened, but I feel like it's become less common. It's always the background music from Epidemic Sound. So like Shane Dawson's vlogs, he uses tons of that music. And it's like from the subscription-based music royalty thing, Epidemic Sound. And they will find the song playing in the background of a clip of Shane Dawson and try to claim all of this, the rights from it. Also, um, some mainstream song. Oh, the Britney Spears Lifetime movie. It's like rock and roll. I love rock and roll. It's like they own the rights to that song somehow. And so they're claiming the rights. For, I don't get paid for that video from AdSense because they, they claimed it. And it's like, it's a, it's a clip from a movie that licensed the song. So it's a fair use clip up with the of a licensed right. song. And they just keep upholding it. And it's like, I'm not getting a copyright strike over this. But it's the same one. PewDiePie had the same company. Um, he played, you know, that meme version of like the recorder playing the Titanic song. It's like, and it's like all off tune. He like originated that sound by playing it on his recorder. And it's intentionally off tune of the Titanic soundtrack. And they were like striking. They were taking all of the money from his performance of a parody intentionally out of tune version of the Titanic, My Heart Will Go On. And they never let up. Um, it's like it's something that's still, I think, like a problem for him. So it's like, when I read that, I was like, fucking PewDiePie. Sorry? Yet Weird Al Yankovic is like an icon. I'm confused. Exactly. I know. It's like, because he is dealing with American copyright holders when he publishes that music. You know, it's like the actual artist's copyright, where this is like the Brazilian rights to an American song that isn't even in the thing. And they can, uh, they can. I guess, I don't know if Brazil has different copyright laws, but it'll, it empowers them to go after it worldwide because it's YouTube. So if you can block it worldwide, you've just enforced like the copyright law of your your territory on the whole world so it's it's just like kind of an oversight with the um youtube copyright claim system that you know is not a perfect thing it's never going to be but it's got to be evolving it's got to be always like i think youtube has to always be on the lookout for how it can be abused with basically zero consequence by the copyright holder um who chooses to ignore fair use which they often do that's criminal, to say the least. <laughs> Truly, yeah, it's against the law to create an, a, a bad faith copyright claim, which is exactly how I appeal them all. And like, listen, mama, any judge who looks at this is gonna say it's it's fair use. It's a review from the beginning. It's very clear that it's a review. It's not replacing the content that you're claiming. And by creating this bad faith review, like it's not, it's, and six out of 10 people would think like, that's a review, it's, so therefore it's fair use. That's a bad faith claim. And now you're actually infringing on my right to free speech. So, 
you're also affecting my business. And so my LLC, Nick Raymond Productions, is now suffering financial damage because you just ripped this video down and I depend on that for cash flow. So it's like, we're, I'm actually gonna sue you now for, for financial damage if you don't uh, release this erroneous copyright claim. And um, that's my advice to anyone who's dealing with copyright claims. It's like, just let them know there are lawyers out there who will pro bono take on your bad faith copyright claim and go after these big studios for financial damage if they're doing bad faith claims, which is like something they can do to silence a bad review. Um, which is exactly why free speech exists to prevent that kind of thing. And they don't want to take it to court because if they lose, it sets a precedent for now every YouTube video uh, that uses their copyright material is like, we can point to that case. So they, they, they release it usually. Um, that's not legal advice. This is not legal advice. That's just my experience. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. I'll remember that. <laughs> yeah. I've done some music video reactions where I don't even show the music video in the, like, like I've seen like Zach Campbell break, for example, who I love, he breaks down like all the new music videos and things like that. And he actually has clips of the video showing right. he's fine. I don't even show the, like the most I'll show is like, I'll make a meme out of a clip or a gif out of a clip and like air like two seconds of like some choreography and talk about it but I don't even play the music I don't air the video and I got a copyright claim from a Nicki Minaj video I was like ma'am yeah probably Universal Music Group or something like that they're beasts it's so annoying it's like when they when it's a manual claim that's when you know it's gonna be a pain in the ass because like normally if you could escape the the copyright claim censors like it doesn't automatically detect it you're fine but as soon as like Lionsgate or Lasso Media Group or UMG, it's like they've got departments devoted to, uh, you know, their intellectual properties who are Googling this stuff, finding it, even when YouTube doesn't alert them of it, which to me is like proof that it's been transformed enough that it's not, not copyright infringement, but they want the profit, they want, uh, it's like, well, in what world, are you claiming somebody's Nicki Minaj review that makes 0.000001% of what the whole album did and you need to grub for that like years later? It's, it's like that's clearly big business trying to squash uh, the media or, or small business, whatever. It's not, not consumer friendly, that's for sure. Right. Where do you want your channel to ultimately take you? Um, that's a good question. I think that I just would be happy if I can continue working in entertainment for the, you know, until I retire. Like, whether that's online entertainment purely, just making videos like I do now, that's cool. If I can, like, um, get into, I don't know, more mainstream rooms or, or, or bigger audiences, like, um, talking head things for television or even just writing for TV or, uh, you know, the, 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 the YouTuber to Hollywood pipeline <laughs> thing. Like, that's fine too. That Obviously, I'm not going to say no to that. But um, I think I have the confidence in my, in my work to know that I could write and I have the education and experience to write or work on, uh, you know, traditional studio projects. 
So that would be cool. It would be very validating to have that opportunity. But I also don't need to because I know that that has its drawbacks too. You know, it's like, I don't want to get up and go to set <laughs> every day forever, like necessarily. And then, then, then you learn from like things like this writer's strike that even people who achieve their dream of being on television or working on TV shows are struggling to get paid fairly. And so I, then I feel privileged just to have, uh, you know, be fairly compensated for what I do uh, independently. Um, it'd be great to maybe get to work on like independent film or director appear in um, projects that show off a more, like what we're discussing, like, oh, is it true that I know how to like perform a, in a narrative film in a way that seems natural? Can I carry my own as a director? It would be cool to have those opportunities, but also a double-edged sword. Because like, if you're going to be critiquing all of these movies, there are so many external factors that can make a movie less effective than you wanted it to, right? So it's like, even the director who has like the best movie in their head, they might make something that's less than that or more open to criticism or easily checks off the boxes that I've criticized movies for in the past. So it's like, I recognize that that's... Uh, opening my making myself a uh, fair game for a lot of criticism of being like hypocritical by not making the movie that I said I would when I critiqued a similar movie or whatever but at the same time I'm like still I want to hear that I, if that's the feedback that's the feedback it's still a good opportunity or it would be um, so yeah I'm open to all of that kind of thing I think I just want to be able to make a career last without having to go back to uh, like working in an office necessarily or at least right now, I don't see myself wanting to do that. Um, so, yeah. Collaborating with more people I think would be cool, you know, like getting to work on a show or a podcast or whatever with people, you know, outside of my apartment or whatever. Um, that kind of stuff all excites me. Being able to just like reach new audiences, talk about new things, find new ways of expressing myself, but still getting to make a living out of it. You can make the, you could literally make the next Mommy Dearest or Showgirls, bro. Yes, that's true, like a cult <laughs> classic. Making the movie you thought you were making, it could end up being the next Showgirls. So exactly. One way. That's a good point, yeah, there's, and even the worst movies, they're somebody's favorite movie. So it's, uh, to me, it's all about the privilege and the experience, getting to, if you're making a movie, if you're put in charge of a movie, it's like there are several companies and CEOs and executives who really have faith that what you're doing is going to be watchable. And so that in itself is, you know, would be an honor. And then also the what you learn, you know, what I would learn from directing a feature film, I'm sure would be, you, you know, you can't pay for that kind of thing. You can't. It would, it would inform the way that I critique and comment on things going forward. I'm sure it would change my whole perspective on the process because it'd be a new uh, scale and new position compared to what I used to work on in film, which was like small, low budget, makeup department, art department stuff. You know what I think you would be amazing on if they still did this? You remember those VH1 talking head shows? Like I love the 90s and like, Stuff. Girl went, code. I was just about to say if they rebooted Guy Code. <laughs> I would have loved it. That's the kind of thing I think about where I'm like, that would be a fun thing. Like if I was talking head, and it's like it's similar to what I do on YouTube now, but like 
television. But yeah, those are, those, thank you. But those are less common now. It's like, they don't do that. I guess YouTube literally took the place of those. It sucks because I wanted to do that for so long. Like, I was like, if I could just get paid to just sit and talk about pop culture all day, that would be incredible. And then the last of those shows that I heard of, I think it was maybe like an independent production. They were doing this show, Gay Code, on I think uh-huh. it was YouTube. I was trying to audition for that, and I never really got like, like the kind of, like the conversations kind of stalled for it. But I, but I also don't know if they're still doing it, so it may just be they're right. not doing it anymore. I would have. But those are great like introductions to people like Nicole Byer. I was like, oh my god, like iconic uh, comedian, and it's like that all started with Girl Code. And then I would see people like I went to school with, like my roommate, my roommate from freshman year was all of a sudden on, um, not, it would be like one of the year in reviews. It'd be like 2020 or 2012, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it comes out right before New Year's and they're like, we talk about all the big pop culture moments of the year ahead. And like, this was like a former, my freshman year roommate who worked at Buzzfeed. And I was like, they're not funny, but they just worked at Buzzfeed and Buzzfeed was like in at the time. Um, I was like, I could do that, but I guess I can't because they don't make that show anymore. <laughs> but thank you. That would be fun. That's the kind of thing I think about. Yeah, for sure. Like, maybe we should, maybe we should do that. Yeah. Um, just that. But yeah, um, now I have a, <laughs> I have an interesting question that I've been waiting to get to this whole interview. <laughs> so picture it, Hollywood. 2024 they're rebooting the chair and they tell you to be a contestant on the chair and let's just say they give you the same script they're like okay neither one of these movies did anything but we like the script see if you can do it any better what would you have done with that script uh, with Holidaysburg, I would definitely have. I think I probably would have gender swapped somebody to make it queer, or bring in at least some sort of. I would. I love movies that are able to include um, trans characters without making the storyline revolve around their trans identity. So maybe just with casting, I think I would have tried to be more um, broad in terms of giving like representation to more groups. Um, I would have probably been more clear about whether it was a comedy or a drama. I think, I think, I think, um, what's her name? The woman who directed her version of it on the chair. She, it wasn't funny enough and it wasn't, moving enough for me to really put it in either box um and then shane's was was just garbage without any emotional weight i think i would have probably taken inspiration from um more from like comedies that uh, held up a little longer but still felt relatable and meaningful like um book smart or uh what's super bad you know, it's like, those all felt authentic to the teen experience. And these ones that we saw on the chair felt written by an adult. Um, I felt like the characters were 
I didn't see myself in them as like a child. I, I felt like they're 22 year olds playing 16 year olds. So maybe casting the appropriate age actors would be one way of, of getting closer to the authenticity of it. Um, but I definitely think I would have uh, brought in that feeling. You know, what I thought the script had a lot of potential for was that feeling of like the end of winter break in New England, you know, where it's like dirty snow, wet ground, seasonal depression, um, interpersonal drama, uh, and regret, you know, you know, heartache, stupid decisions, underage drinking, trying to cope with um, the weight of like these things that we feel at that age with alcohol and with with sex in, in search of love and like just the melancholy nature of it. I think that's like a really good stage for comedy. You know, it's like um, the depression that we all experience <laughs> during winter as teenagers because we're already so hormonal and pubescent and hungry and horny. It's like there's 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 more humor there than I think I saw in those two. Absolutely. Who do we need to call? Because the idea of that show was really good. I never saw it. I just know it through your video. But the idea of that show seems like a really great idea. But yeah, I, I just I don't I would have never watched Shane's version of the movie, and I don't think I would have been intrigued enough to go see Holidays first. Yeah, you know, and the move the show is my dog Toast, by the way. The, the show was kind of based on Project Greenlight, which Zachary Quinto also worked on. And it was like more the adult version of that without them being young people. I don't know. It's sort of like they were more career filmmakers who would get a budget. And that made lots of good movies. It made like the movie Feast, which was really fun. Um, but that show only lasted like a few more seasons than The Chair did. So um, yeah, there used to be a lot more reality TV based on like behind the scenes or the process of making movies, but there's like Scream Queens, which was a reality show about making a low budget oh. horror film. Um, I loved all of that. Cause like on America's Next Top Model, the commercial shoes were always my favorite where it's like watching them shoot the commercial. So it felt a lot like that. But yeah, so we the person we need to get in touch with is Zachary Quinto. He apparently holds the keys to all of those. What's it? Find Zachary Quinto's Instagram. Got yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell him I said no. hey. Hey. <laughs> what is the next clip that we should be waiting for you to break down? What's the next clip? What's the next video? Can you tell us or will it be a surprise? Oh, I can tell you. It's something we've already touched upon. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Ryan Murphy uh, and his controversial stunt casting of Kim Kardashian in American Horror Story, a show that I loved, season one, and have a difficult relationship with now. You are truly an icon. <laughs> I find myself so enamored. Like, it's, it's, I don't know if I'm going crazy or if something is wrong with me, but I literally am obsessed with Kim Kardashian playing this part. It feels so meta 
like I was like so you why didn't y'all just cast Chris Jenner for this? Exactly. I love Ryan Murphy's use of non-actors and stunt casting. Like when he has Nene leaks or like random people will show up in Glee that you're like, why are um, yeah? And it's like almost like you can't tell if the acting's good or not because it's not. But the rest of the show is so cartoonish that you're just like, I guess I accept it. You know. So it's like that's where I'm at with her. Watching Kim Kardashian in Delicate has made me pay more attention to Emma Roberts as an actress than I ever have. It makes her look so bad at acting. Oh my God. She makes her look like a horrible actress. Oh I'm my like, God. Wait, I was like, why are, they both, why are they both shitty right now? <laughs> like she was in movies. <laughs> what is happening? What is going on? Why is this happening? Why is Kim Kardashian I making this live, live scene? I was like, who is this acting? Like, what is this? first day of acting school fucking nonsense and then just a small detail that i'm pretty sure you would appreciate emma roberts hair is very distracting it is i say that same thing in my video it looks like a barbie wig like it's so distracting i'm like why it looks so fake great but and you know I have a, I have a theory. Like it's so reminiscent of Rosemary's Baby. I just know she's gonna cut that hair. I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for the scene, and it's just madness. And it reminds me of um, the first It by Stephen King movie that came out in 2017. That girl Beverly, she had like she cuts her hair in like the second scene of the movie. So the first movie, she's like what with her pippy long stocking ponytail extension and i was like i'm just waiting for that to come off like <laughs> you can like see where the where the scissors are gonna go yes like it like i keep looking at her hair and i keep waiting for that scene in melrose place at the very end when the girl takes the wig off and it's just scams <laughs> yeah i'm trying to figure out though because i like i do you think it's a wig or like extensions because i can't really tell from looking at the top of the head but I was curious, so I was like, oh, we'll find out. I've been, like, that's the only reason why I watch now is to watch it, is to watch the hair. It's because right now, the hair watch. it looks like they got the person who made the wigs on Game of Thrones to make this wig. It's getting low budget Daenerys. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so long that you can't help but notice it. It's like it's its own trailer. <laughs> it's so long and it's so bone straight and it feels so stationary. Like it, like the entire unit moves when she does. So it's, it does. It's, it looks stiff. Yes, it's so distracting. I'm like, well, was that intentional? Like, is that a plot device that I should be paying attention to? Because <laughs> it stands out. Like, then on top of that, the entire, like, color of the show is so dark and dreary. And she has this bright yellow blonde hair. And I'm like, right. Should I be paying attention to this? Or is this just something? Or did, or like, what, like, what happened? You're right. I think whatever they were trying to do didn't come across. And I think they're trying to be like the sixth sense where it's like, you see the color red, it's like, pay attention. And I'm like, it's not standing out. Everything is...
What's going on, everybody? Brian K. James here, and I'm so excited to let you know that this podcast is being brought to you in part by Outlander Media Network. Outlander's mission is to bring you the most exclusive alternative content from across the web, from the farthest reaches invading your space. We appreciate every single one of you guys for tuning in and never want you to forget to embrace your inner Outlander. I am Brian K. James, and this is Real Reality Realness. But the, the hair, it really is like, I'm like, I feel like that hair is getting its own close up right now. Or she's like in the hospital bed. I'm like, it's so long. No one mentions how long it is, but I'm like, I would feel like everyone would be talking about how long her hair is, you know? So I'm ready for it to be It's all one length. It's bluntly cut at the bottom. There's no layers. It's, it's just, it's so distracting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unstyled blonde. <laughs> literally about the stroke. That is so accurate. It is so accurate. And the makeup too, like they're trying to give everyone edgy eyeshadow. Like she's on the What's What Happens Live in it. And it's like this horribly done, like winged gray eyeshadow. I was like, mm. Like, so Alexis Vogel was just not available for this. Like y'all were trying to do Pamela Anderson in the 90s and it just did not happen. It looks like the nurse in the Mary the Night music video by Lady Gaga. We're like, why do these nurses have a daytime smoky eye? <laughs> yes. Yes. Literally, I was watching the first episode, and when she goes in for the egg implantation, I was like, these nurses in these red outfits, like, moving in unison, they're like, damn. <laughs> it's true. It was so too much. Ah, so great. But yeah, okay, so we're doing Delicate. I'm excited to see it. (laughs) I cannot wait to hear about Kim Kardashian. I can't, don't spoil any of it here. I want to hear all of it fresh because I know I'm going to be literally screaming at the TV. All I can say is I feel like we share a brain (laughs) from talking about our childhood onwards to like this about Delicate. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Yes. I am going to be having an email open, just typing the email. <laughs> I can't wait. I will be ready. Yes, I relate to you so much. I cannot wait. Oh my gosh. But I've held you here for almost three hours. So we're about to down a little bit. I had such uh, a great time. I did too. Like I could literally keep you here for three days. Like I really could. Because we like share brand. Right. Love you dearly. Is there anything that you would like to share with me and the audience that we didn't get a chance to cover during this conversation? Ooh, we covered so much territory. You know, I can't think of anything in particular. Um, I would maybe just add, like, you know, the one question I get the most is like, what would you recommend to people who want to do this for a living? And it's like, I always say like make your first video without planning to post it because you're gonna have a lot of notes for yourself. Like take that pressure off of yourself to make this your first video because so much comes through as you get more comfortable with the camera and learn how to edit your own 
on-camera presence. And um, don't make videos about anything that you don't find interesting. Don't make it just because everyone else is. You can talk about the topics everyone else is talking about, but do it from an angle that specifically interests you. Especially if it's a, a, an interest that you feel like nobody else you know thinks about or talks about, because that's how you find those people who do think about it that way. Like um, like us in this conversation where you're like, now, now I'm finding my niche. I know what I'm talking about. I know what, make, what I bring to the table that's unique um, while you're learning to like, edit and be yourself on camera in a way that still is engaging. So that's one piece of it. unsolicited advice for everyone. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Um, another question that I have for you guys, there was one that I thought of in the midst of your last answer, but I'll try to think of it again later. But will you come back? Because I, I would love to get your thoughts on like shows you haven't covered, don't plan on covering, so it won't, you know, contaminate your content. But I would love to come back and just do like, like just a chat of us breaking down something together or like talking about the, the absurdity of like something going on. Like I don't see you cover much Housewives. Yeah. So maybe come back and do housewives or something but i would love to have you back on the pod this has been my favorite conversation that i've had in a long time thank you oh my god thank you no that means so much i've had such a great time freaking of course i would love to come back i've done podcasts on the real housewives before they're always my favorite like reality shows that i can just jump in and jump out for a single episode like that's my jam so i would love to come back and talk about anything you want you pick the topic i'll be here Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Now, before I let you go, let everybody know where they can find you, all the things you want to promote, the YouTube channel, the stand-up tour, your new movie, <laughs> the book, the makeup line, all the things. Perfect. Yeah, you can find me on YouTube uh, if you search Clip Breakdown or my name, Nick Duramio. I am at Nick Duramio across all social media. And um, the makeup line, movie, and comedy tour, we're collectively manifesting. So I would appreciate everybody's um, mental energy into those. Uh, if, you're, if you do any spells or you have any sort of magical abilities to make things happen, I would direct your attention towards my career. And <laughs> otherwise, um, yeah check me out on youtube say hi i have my patreon where you can access exclusive bonus episodes virtual watch parties and things of that nature yes oh either charm or the remake of boys in the band we'll we'll talk later Love that. We'll talk. <laughs> but on that note that has been our show folks i know I, I, I know y'all want three more hours of us breaking down culture. You'll just have to wait, okay? I have to let Nick go back to being great, breaking down clips, manifesting makeup lines, stand up toward things. The man is very busy, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate every single one of you for tuning in to help me to to facilitate these conversations. And I wanna extend an extra special thank you to my guest and my new best friend, Nick Duramio, for being here. Thank you so much for joining the pod today. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. I had such a great time. I can't wait to come back and talk more. Yay! 
make sure you guys subscribe, follow, suggest clips, leave comments, do all of the things, like the videos, buy the ticket, buy the book, buy the makeup line, do all the things, leave comments for toast, all of all of those things. <laughs> Now, with that being said, I want to remind every single one of you guys out there watching and listening to be real, stay in reality, and always, always bring the realness. I'm Brian K. James. This has been Real Reality Realness, and I love every single one of you guys from the bottom of my green heart emoji. Until next time, misbehave yourselves. Peace. Bye, guys. <laughs>